Hey folks, Justin Bishop here. We are hard at work on the next episode of Cinema Shock where we will be covering Choi Hawk's Once Upon a Time in China. We are really excited for this episode. We think you're really going to enjoy the story behind this one. And while our Once Upon a Time in China episode isn't part of an overarching series, it does have some ties to a couple of our past episodes, specifically regarding the history of martial arts cinema. One such episode is the one from our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series, where we covered Game of Death, which was Bruce Lee's final film, of course. It was the one that was unfinished at the time of his premature death in 1973. In that episode, we talk extensively about the life of Bruce Lee and his career, and specifically the impact that he had on the martial arts film industry. And this all ties heavily in with the story of Once Upon a Time in China. So before we release our Once Upon a Time episode, we want to republish our, our Game of Death episode. Uh, you know, for any new listeners who may not have had a chance to check it out, or for any older listeners who may just want a refresher. So enjoy the show, and we'll be back in a few days with Once Upon a Time in China. China. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion, it's a lion, it's a lion. I guess everyone's a title one could scare them. Like, watch Discovery. She has this thing. Oh, okay. She has this thing now where every show I freaking suggest she hates like she's like no nah, i'm not feeling that nah, and then she watches really it and loves it. it yeah exactly and so that happened with discovery again like i kept saying <laughs> discovery and finally i just played it the other day and i was just like we're watching this right now it was like last weekend and now we're already almost through season one um because she loves it and she only wants to watch discovery <laughs> and i was like we're not watching this anymore you hated this you were not into this you didn't want to watch star trek i feel like she has always done that gary she that's been our whole relationship <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's basically it like i mean i even suggested wandavision the other day because i was oh. like i mean this looks fun let's watch this she's like well i don't care anything about that but then she was talking to her friend from work ashley and ashley said this WandaVision show looks really interesting. And she's like, I think I kind of want to watch WandaVision and see. Oh, uh, like, so she, she, uh, she just she trusts trusts my opinion. She, yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. She's not down <laughs> for whatever you're into. <laughs> Somehow that's my wife. Anyway. Yeah. Well, hello and welcome to the cinema shock. It is the, the cinema shock. The cinema the shock. <laughs> the cinema shock. Not to be confused with any of the other cinema shocks. No, it's the there. cinema shock. What's the cinema shock? <laughs> uh, God damn it, Marlene. <laughs> um, so this is the show where we break down movies and give you all the behind the scenes details and go deep dives into your favorite cult and genre cinema. Um, that's that's what we do here. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. <laughs> I am co-host Justin Bishop. Got a good news, bad news scenario here today, Gary. Uh, unfortunately, Todd is no longer with us, uh-huh. but we are luckily joined today by someone who uh, sounds and looks a little bit like him in low light and from the right angle. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Um, Mr. Rod J. Davis is with us today. Welcome to the show, Rod. Rod J. Davis. What's weird is, Do- is I didn't Doctor. know. Doctor. 
Doctor Rod. Rod J. Davis. I need your doctorate in Rod. Thugonomics. Uh, that- yes. Um, uh, I majored in fuckery and um, <laughs> with a minor in douchebaggery. And um, it's so know. weird, though. I didn't realize, Rod, that you would look so much like Todd. Um, just at the right angle, at least the right ethnicity. It's a, it's um, a, it's a popular look. It's a popular look. Well, so what I ended up doing was I printed out and uh, taped a picture of Todd's face on my screen right here where you are. <laughs> so it's basically the same thing. I mean, it's pretty close. Like it's, it's, you know, if, if you're, if you're paying attention to your girl that you brought to the theater or to the podcast, um, then you might blink and, and miss that uh, it's not Todd A. Davis. It's actually in order to find a replacement. We simply stuck our head out the window and yelled, "Hey, we're doing a podcast!" And a bunch of bunch of white dudes with beards showed up. I was and we just to say <laughs> we put out a wad ad for a bearded white guy. <laughs> Turns out super easy to find. Yeah, <laughs> most of them have podcast experience. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this week, y'all, is episode four of our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series, where, of course, we are talking about m- a bunch of movies that are direct inspiration to Quentin Tarantino's 2004 film, Kill Bill. And whenever you mention Kill Bill, uh, there is, I think, one iconic image that comes to mind, and that is Uma Thurman as the bride dressed in that yellow jumpsuit with a black racing stripe down the side. Uh, but that tracksuit, it became iconic years before Uma ever put it on. It was worn originally by the legendary Bruce Lee in the film that we're talking about today, one of the most infamous unfinished projects in the history of film, The Game of Death. He is an international superstar. They call him a living legend, but the woman he loves belongs to the mob. And now they're out to own him. Don't be a slow learner, Billy. Billy! If they can't buy him, they'll have to kill him. Billy! You don't have too many choices. A final warning. And so begins the game of death. Columbia Pictures presents the immortal Bruce Lee in his greatest motion picture adventure, Game of Death. It begins as a matter of principle. It becomes a matter of survival. As the undisputed master of the martial arts becomes a master of disguise and the champion of the game of death. This is the final film of Bruce Lee. Four and a half years in production with an international all-star cast. You lose, Carl Miller. Bruce Lee single-handedly takes on an underworld army and fights for his life in the game of death. The final film of Bruce Lee. Game of death. All right, so this one, guys, this this one's going to be fun. Uh, Was that racist? It's just music. It's just music, guys. Uh, this is a tough one to discuss because I, this movie has one a very complex history uh and if you were to just jump into the story of game of death without discussing the rest of bruce lee's career it's not going to mean quite as much because where bruce lee was at the time that he started filming game of death is kind of a a big part of this film's story 
We already have some discrepancy because you said it was part of one of the most iconic scenes in Kill Bill or images from Kill Bill. But for me, it was Buck's vehicle. That's the first thing I think of from Kill Bill. You mean the pussy wagon. The pussy wagon. And uh, Buck is here to fuck. um, Or or to to party, depending on which version you're watching. To be (laughs) honest, I still haven't made it part. I I haven't made it past Uma Thurman wiggling her big toe. That kind of. That (laughs) really gets you going. That does it for me. That's that's where I stop right there. I'm sure that we will discuss in greater detail some of the other films of Bruce Lee's career at some point. We have actually already discussed Enter the Dragon, what, about a year and a half ago on our old show. I think Todd was there for that one too, weren't you, Todd? I was, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you were on as a special did, guest. I, he's usually I our did. go-to for, for kung fu <laughs> movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're despite, gonna give a, despite my love of Crippled Masters, you guys I, trust for, me Somehow that was the first fu. one, you, the first movie you brought on our show, and we still <laughs> let you back. Not that it was a bad choice for the show, just that it was a bad choice that you thought it was a Hall of Fame movie. Like, oh, let's not get it. It's that that's a whole nother. This is a whole nother discussion. We'll be here all damn day. (laughs) (laughs) So Bruce Lee was born on uh, November 27th, 1940. Uh, birth name was Jun Fang Li. Uh, he was born in the Chinatown district of San Francisco. And according to the Chinese Zodiac, he was born in both the hour and the year of the dragon. Hence cool. his nickname mm-hmm. of the dragon or little dragon as he was known as a kid. And his terrible dragon breath. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, Lee, Lee and his parents uh, ended up returning to Hong Kong, where, which is where they were from, of course, when he was only three months old. And, Bruce, he wasn't very like he wasn't very interested in school when he was a kid. He wasn't a great student. He would often skip class to hang out on the streets with his friends. See, Lee's father, his father's name was Lee Hoi Chin. He was a very famous Cantonese opera star. And they were also pretty wealthy. They were one of the wealthiest families in Hong Kong, not only because of his fame, but because he, he had a lot of like rental properties and stuff that he made money from. So they were, they were very well off. Uh, one result of his fame though, was that Bruce was introduced to film at a very young age. He started appearing in uh, movies when he was like six years old, I think. Uh, and he had his first leading role at the age of nine appearing alongside his father in a movie called the kid uh, in 1950. Not to be confused with the Charlie Chaplin. Same movie. Is it the same movie? No. Oh, no, that's not that's not it <laughs> the interesting thing about the opera is that this movie has like little things peppered throughout it that seem to be like callbacks to bruce lee or like trying to pay tribute to bruce lee on one hand it's like very respectful of bruce lee like it seems like it wants to be and then at some point you're like you guys are fucking nuts yeah like, what, <laughs> what is this but like the peking uh opera i think bruce lee's dad primarily worked is like uh that Roy, uh, what's his name? Chao. I will probably mispronounce names, like you always point out, Justin. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all right. We're doing. But he plays best. Lee's uncle in yes in in the movie. Like he was mm-hmm. he was there. He had worked there, and like he had also been in other Bruce Lee movies. That guy was in like Temple of Doom and Bloodsport, and he's all over the place. But yeah. Anyway, like even Jackie Chan uh, has like roots in that uh, Peking Opera yeah. house and stuff. So it was just like a it was a callback or like something. You know, they were trying to give like a shout out there. Uh, right, so right. it's kind of interesting. So by the time he was 18 years old, Bruce had already appeared in 20 films. Uh, he oftentimes played like kids that were getting, you know, little punk kids getting in fights, even as a teenager. You know, that was kinda, he was already fighting on screen. He wasn't a trained fighter, but he was already fi- fighting on screen. 
Uh, when he was 12 years old, Bruce Lee started attending an all-boys Catholic school there in Hong Kong, where he continued to be kind of an underachiever in academics. Uh, his teachers there saw him as lazy and rebellious. He was always getting in fights. Uh, the Chinese students at this school, they had a rivalry with some students at another school across town that was filled with mostly British students. And they, they would taunt each other, basically. And it would often result in these big, vicious fist fights where the police had to be called in to break things up. Like, Bruce Lee was a little punk kid. Like, he was a troublemaker. And by this time, and then it fighting, gets into fights between like the the jets and the is it the sharks? Yeah, yeah. Well, they just start snapping on the yeah. way. Well, that on happens in this Hong movie Kong. too. You see some guys snap, and there's even uh, at one point Steiner like snaps and gives some metal fingers. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. Snap metal fingers, and you're like, shit's going down. Yeah, this Ooh. guy means business. So, but, but fighting had become a major part of Bruce's life at this point, and he realized that in these fights, when he gets in these fights, he's always got his gang behind his back, and they've always got like chairs and shit that they can use as weapons. But he's like, well, what happens if somebody corners me? What if I'm left alone and I don't have my gang to back me up? So kind of thinking about this, he decided he needed to be trained in martial arts. And his parents agreed because his parents thought the training in martial arts would give him some much needed discipline. Ugh, but, like, but for my days of teaching martial arts, that was... <laughs> You you get brought the troublemakers of like hey <laughs> you do you deal with you deal with them. <laughs> That's Damn why it. so many uh, so many <laughs> karate studios around here say like we teach Christian principles. It's like yeah, but yeah, you teach people to hit each other too, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just it's the only class where when the student acts up, it's like considered like part of the curriculum that they get kicked in the face. So, <laughs> That's why so it works the, so well. <laughs> At the age yeah. of 13, Bruce began training in Wing Chun, uh, a type of Kung Fu. He was being trained under uh, a guy named William Chung, and he took to it immediately. He was really good pretty much right away. He made progress insanely fast. He was basically, I mean, he was a natural. Like, it just came naturally to him. Uh, just, it, just like an Asian. Well, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not me this week. Uh, I haven't I done think, this yet. <laughs> I think part of it was because Bruce was a trained dancer as well. Uh, that doesn't get mentioned a lot when, when his biographies come up, but he was a trained dancer. He won oh, yeah. dance contests. Like he was, you know, uh, he was a trained dancer. So I think a lot of those moves and his fighting style that he ends up later on developing has a lot of very dance-like techniques. Some of the, it. Some of the best footwork ever yeah oh yeah which he got what he he got from muhammad ali he was so good though that his his teacher chung william chung introduced him to his master which was the legendary martial artist yip man uh, we all have heard of yip man, man or ip man depending on the spelling that you see i'm sure you've seen the movies with with donnie yen about oh, his they life wild. uh they're wild. Yeah, they're, yeah they're super fun they, yeah those are awesome uh yip I, man, at this point if, you, was, if you're not into martial arts you, you got to see it man yeah, uh, or Ipman, if you want to be classy like R Justin. But. Well, that's how well, I mean, they pronounce it. So, besides like being <laughs> badass fighting movies, they're also like just really well made, and you know, they are. you know, kind of a again, it's you know dramatized, but it's kind of a nice little slice of martial arts history. Yeah, the Grandmaster is another one uh, about him that from a not connected to that franchise, but that I would highly, highly recommend checking out. Nice. Yipman did not normally train. He didn't train a lot of people directly at this point he was older at the, in his life at this point and bruce became one of the few students to train privately with him that's how good he was so when bruce had begun training he mostly just wanted to learn 
how to win a street fight. Like that's, that's what his motivation was initially, but training with Yipman, he was taught not only the physical aspects of the martial arts, but of the emotional and philosophical ones as well, like controlling your anger, your controlling your breathing, things like this, that would stick with Lee through his entire life. But despite his training, he continued to be a troublemaker and he was eventually expelled from school and forced to transfer to another school across town. So at this new school, he's still getting in trouble, you know, and one of his teachers encouraged him to redirect his energy by entering into the boxing championships there in Hong Kong. There was actually a, a boxing tournament that was being held between his new school and the, the British boys school that he, he had had rivalries with in the past. So they had a boxing championship, not martial arts, just kind of American style boxing. So he liked the idea. He trained for it. And then he goes in and he breezes through the preliminary rounds, beats everyone pretty easily. Uh, and he did this by using blocking techniques that he had learned from Yipman. And then he gets in the championship fight. He's fighting a guy who's won like the last three years in a row reigning champion and beats him like it's nothing. Yeah. Like some of those, some of those, especially Wing Chun uh, inspired blocking techniques, you know, for, for, you know, Queens rules boxing, it's more about just cover right. as opposed to actively having an active defense and actually blocking. So if you can actually do that and counter, you're untouchable, which, yeah. you know, which he absolutely he, which, was, which yes. he absolutely was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Bruce is still getting into street fights, despite, you know, that he was able to kind of redirect this into an actual sport. He's still getting in trouble outside of this. So his mother decided that he needed to get away from the bad influence of his friends, this, this gang of friends that he was hanging out with, and suggested that he go to America. Because remember, he was born in America. Mm. So if he goes to America and claims his citizenship before he turns 18, he can be an American citizen. So he's 17 years old at this point. He's got to go. So he takes a three-week trip on a boat across the ocean, comes to America, and moves in with a family friend. Uh, his father, of course, his father was around still as well, but his father agreed that he should go to America because his prospects in Hong Kong were grim. Like he didn't think he'd be able to get into college and have, have a promising future if he kept getting in trouble the way that he was. So he moves back to America. He, he moves to Seattle, 1959, enrolls in a high school there. And then- Starts well, drinking in coffee, <laughs> listening to listening Nirvana. Listening to a lot of, lot of grunge. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> wearing plaid. <laughs> Seattle had an, um, an Asian culture day uh, while he was in high school there. And when they did this, some of his teachers asked him to give a Kung Fu demonstration in front of the school. So- he did. And one person that was in the audience that day was a guy named James DeMille. James DeMille was a former U.S. Army heavyweight boxing champion. So Bruce is looking around. Bruce sees and recognizes James DeMille in the audience and asks him to come up and join the demonstration. So DeMille walks up, sees this, you know, five foot eight Chinese guy, kind of small guy, you know, and DeMille's a big hulking dude. He's like, yeah, OK, I'm going to easily beat this guy is not able to land a single blow. Not a single blow uh, touches Bruce Lee at all. So after the demonstration, DeMille asked Lee, to, he's like, he wants him to show him some moves and teach him some of his moves. And so this 17-year-old kid is teaching a, a world champion stuff that he doesn't know, right? Yeah. And that led into Bruce Lee teaching martial arts. And he soon had a pretty devoted group of students at a very young age. So 
after he graduated high school, he goes to college at the University of Washington. He he did actually while he was in Seattle at, in high school, we should say he did start to actually focus on his academics and got better and graduated with a pretty good GPA. Was able to get into college. Goes to the University of Washington where he was a um, a drama major because he still had aspirations of being a movie star because you know he'd been in movies as a kid. He often says, if you look in interviews with Bruce Lee, he says that he majored in philosophy. Uh, which is not true. He did not major in philosophy. <laughs> uh, it's just part of the legend that he created about himself. But there are documents saying that he did he did major in in uh, in drama. Although he didn't graduate, he ended up he ends up dropping out of college here in a bit. But he continues his martial arts training while he's in school, pulling what he'd learned from Wing Chun, but also adding in elements of other forms of fighting. Uh, and see, sort of is starting to develop his own distinctive fighting style. And he ends up dropping out of school and opening his own martial arts school at the age of 22. And it was around this time, he's 22 years old, and he meets another student, uh, someone that he had met there at the university named Linda Emery. So in 1964, Bruce is invited to give another demonstration, this time at the Long Beach International Karate Championships. And it was there. You can find this footage online of him fighting. He's fighting in full pads because another thing Bruce didn't like about a lot of karate championships was this idea of a point system based on, yeah, somebody would have won that fight, you know, Uh, whereas Bruce was like a fight is contact. Yeah. You know? uh, so, so he did a demonstration with full contact. They're both wearing pads and stuff. And he was one of the first martial arts trainers to, to do that, to wear boxing pads and things and, and helmets during spars. Yeah. Go, you can go on YouTube. You can find this demonstration of him fighting in all these pads. You can also find images of him demonstrating his famous two finger pushups and the, uh, the one inch punch, um, which is the, where he is able to one inch punch. It's yeah, where he's literally able to stand an inch from somebody and he knocks a guy six feet away. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty wild. Uh, the one in punch coincidentally is also the name that Gary's wife has given to his technique in bed. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like that one. That was good. Oh, Thank that you. was a good one. Dude, I was um, sitting out letting you just tell the story and you brought me back in. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Uh, that was a good one. I'll give me that one. So it was also at this this championship in Long Beach where Bruce met a Filipino martial artist by the name of Dan Inosanto, who would later become Bruce's number one student. Also his best friend, by the way. Yeah. That yeah. You're going to see him later. We'll, we'll yeah, talk, he's going to we'll pop up more again. about him. But yeah. He kind of carries Bruce's legacy is probably helped keep a lot of it surviving. Yeah. So not long after this uh, championship, this is in the summer of 64, in August of 64, Linda, who still Bruce at this point has, has moved to California, but Linda, his girlfriend is, is still living in Seattle. And she writes to him saying that she's pregnant and the two end up getting married. And then Bruce and his, so she moves back to, down with him in, in California and the two of them move in with a man named James Lee, who's a traditionally trained Kung Fu fighter. And then him and Bruce kind of work on this new uh, opening up a new martial arts studio because James Lee was also interested in kind of helping to create a new type of martial arts technique and saw that br- what Bruce was doing was a, a good path towards that. And another thing that they really wanted to do, which was frowned upon in most Chinese martial arts, is they wanted to teach anyone who had a serious interest in learning to fight, not just Chinese people. So what this leads yeah, to that's is, kind of, in, that, I mean, that's kind of like uh, with uh, Ipman, you know, a lot of the a lot of those martial arts didn't get taught to anyone outside their clan or outside their temple. Right. It was well, very, very exclusive. So to not only teach someone 
outside the clan or outside the family, outside the temple, but to teach someone from a completely different race culture. Yeah. Well, I I skipped very, very taboo. I skipped this detail before, but uh, Ipman, when, when Bruce was presented to him as a possible student, he actually initially, there was some resistance to training Bruce because Bruce Lee is a quarter German. His mother's half German. So he was considered of Eurasian uh, ancestry mm. and he would often get teased in, in martial arts classes by other students who didn't want to spar with him because he was a quarter German. So in 1965, a martial artist by the name of Wong Jackman got word that Bruce was teaching Chinese martial arts uh, considered sacred secret arts to Westerners and it pissed him off. He was, he was mad about it. Uh, so he challenged Bruce to a fight. The loser would have to close their school. That's what the fight was. So they get, they get there. They do, they have, they go to have the fight. And when he, I don't think he expected Bruce to actually show up for it. Uh, but Bruce did, he accepted it. And then uh, Wong Jackman says, okay, but there's some rules, like no hitting in the groin, things like this. And Bruce is like, fuck that. Like you challenged me to a fight. We're going to fight. No rules, no holds barred. So they fight and Bruce won pretty easily. Uh, like Wong was, was like running away from him after he got hit a couple times. And Bruce just <laughs> chases him and punches him in the, in the back of the head. And then Wong's like students drag him away. And that was it. Uh, there was no like Sounds finishing right. blow. Yeah. But <laughs> But the, the match was sloppy and Bruce was not happy with how it went because he got he, he wasn't happy with his performance because it was kind of sloppy and he was annoyed that he had become winded during the match. So that kind of prompted Bruce to begin an intense physical training regimen uh, that would continue for his entire life. I mean, Bruce Lee at one point was known as the fittest man alive. And if you watch him on screen, you can absolutely understand yeah. why. Yeah. To, to be fair to Wong Jack, man, he, uh, you know, he, he did... Um say that that fight went like 30 minutes or something. And they, he concluded Lee had lost by, you know, basically like there was no real end to it or something. He had a whole other story he told later, but yeah, I just want to establish that. But a lot of other people who were there have different versions of that fight than, than Wong does. It's kind of, it's kind of the legendary, the legendary fight. So you, you kind of have to cobble together all the stories of people who were yeah there's a story there's no there's no photos there's no film there's no right (laughs) uh this guy matthew polly who wrote uh bruce lee alive he he has like several different accounts of it and like everything you could find on it but he uh he said that mainly there was a guy named david chin there i don't this is probably deeper than we wanted to go on this but the guy david chin he basically said that he arranged the fight for wong jack man and when Bruce Lee showed up, he, he Wong was his friend, but uh, he even said Lee overwhelmed him in like the first few minutes. Like he didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, just uh, Wong told him privately that he regretted fighting Bruce Lee. And yeah, I like bet. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said they were, they were, he said that he concluded they were both being arrogant, is what uh, Wong Jackman said. Well, we're they just, were. I mean, we're, we're just arrogant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were. They were both being arrogant. And, and there, there's you can say a lot of great things about Bruce Lee, but one thing that is 100% true is that he was arrogant. But the thing is, he kind of had every right to be. He was the yeah, best you're Bruce Lee. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can be arrogant when you are. Like, I, I know people talk about, like, how he was portrayed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as being, like, super arrogant. But it's like, Bruce Lee was arrogant. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, there that wasn't the only... He was, there were other aspects of him. He was a very warm and loving person and seemed to be fun to be around. 
But yes, he was arrogant because, well, to quote be. the great philosophers, I mean, one of one of them, at least uh, Kid Rock, he once said, <laughs> they say I'm cocky and I say what? It ain't bragging, motherfucker, if you can back it up. That's, uh, there you go. Did <laughs> you just wrong. have that quote in your head or did yeah, you have that, remember that song? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, nice. impressed. I'm impressed. Nice. So but yeah, I think, I think I think largely people think of Bruce Lee from, you know, the clips of him, you know, regurgitating some philosophy uh, with uh, Howard Cosell and just, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. So they get this image of this almost, you know, enlightened beings like, no, he was a dude. He was a guy. And like yeah. when you get the reputation and you can back it up, like Gary just said, uh, of being like Kid uh, Rock just said, Gary like was, Kid Rock said. Yeah, I was quoting, <laughs> you know, the, the the great Kid Rock. I almost said the late great, but I think, think he's still around. Uh, uh, who cares? <laughs> but, but when you get, but when it's, but when it comes to light that you're clearly one of the baddest men on men on the planet, like some of that's going to go to your head. He wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't some. You know. He was also really good really quickly. Yeah. You know. (laughs) So February 1st, 1965, Linda gives birth to her and Bruce's son, Brandon. And just a few days later, Bruce had his first Hollywood screen test. So yeah, Jay Sebring, a hairstylist to the stars. You might know the name of Jay Sebring. He was, of course, uh, a future Manson family murder victim. He was in the the, the Polanski house when Sharon Tate was killed. Oh, Uh, wow. He had been at the Long Beach tournament where Bruce had demonstrated his one-inch punch and had mentioned him to a producer named William Dozier. William Dozier is the guy who is behind Batman, the 60s Batman series. Yeah. Uh, but Dozier was working on a TV show about Lee Chan, the son of Charlie Chan, the, the, the famous detective. Uh, so while that show never came to be, Dozier had seen potential in Lee and cast him in another of his shows that he was working on, which was The Green Hornet. And uh, that show was not a major success. Uh, but the Green Hornet and Lee's character Cato did introduce most Western audiences to Kung Fu for the first time. This is something that we had not seen. I mean, most Asian movies that had come stateside at this point were uh, wuxia movies or samurai movies, things like that. Not the kind of Kung Fu that Bruce Lee was known for. So the Green Hornet only lasted a single season before being canceled uh, because it's not very good. No. It, and, a, and a lot of and a lot of people just saw it as being trying to be Batman, which is exactly what it was doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But after its cancellation, Lee, he couldn't really get any other roles. So he recommitted himself to teaching martial arts and turned his techniques into a new form of Kung Fu called Jeet Kune Do, oh, yeah. uh, which is the way of the intercepting fist. It, to be honest, like if there's anyone who's sort of into martial arts or the idea of, you know, the philosophy behind Bruce Lee, do yourself a favor, go find a copy of Jeet, uh, the tower of Jeet Kune Do. Own a copy. Amazon. You can, it's, I've got a copy. It's, it, it is, it is fascinating because yeah. like we've been talking about, you know, there's a lot of, in short, he was able to take the Venn diagram of all these different martial art, all these different fighting styles, be it, traditional martial arts, boxing, fencing, and find where they intersect and focus on that. And it, it's really, it's really fascinating reading. Well, and and what you're talking about there, Todd is, is one of the things that's like what part of Bruce Lee's legacy, I think, um, which would be that, I mean, even guys like Dana White of the UFC say this, Mm -hmm. that Bruce Lee is the godfather of MMA, like modern MMA. He was MMA before MMA was a thing. Yeah. Right. Because what he's doing with 
with Jeet Kune Do is he's using stuff he learned in Wing Chun. He's using stuff he learned even in dance, in boxing. Like I said, he his that footwork that he does, he will he will tell you like he got that from Muhammad Ali. You know, oh, yeah. like he's taking elements from all these different styles and turning them into their own thing. And the very definition of what he saw Jeet Kune Do as, which we will get into when we start talking about Game of Death because it's so integral to that movie, is using all these different techniques. Well, I love that about it. That MMA thing, I feel like, comes up during the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fight and uh, when he starts going into chokes and that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. anyway, uh, that James uh, DeMille, or DeMille, I forget how we pronounce it, but um, the the boxer that he ends up training becomes one of his friends. Bruce kept, like, his same close group of friends that he taught and... Like it was, it was interesting. He had like a, he had like yeah. a circle. Well, but, and uh, like people, I mean, you'll see people that he started training and, and meeting back in the late sixties and early seventies, they will appear in his movies. You know, yeah. they'll, he, he keeps them around him. D- Demille ended up writing a book called uh, Disciples of the Dragon. And in that he talks about Jeet Kune Do as like, that was something he developed. Like as while he, he and Bruce were friends, like Bruce was realizing like, all right, now I'm teaching Westerners Wing Chun he said that he actually had the conversation with him, like his, as as they get better at this, well, they're bigger and stronger than me. So like he's like, I've got to think of outside the box even more and, and a way to mix things up because people he felt like people rely too much on their styles. Like they get yeah. they they get like hung up on it and then that's all they do. And Bruce Lee said, Well, to be the ultimate, you know, no pun intended, but the ultimate fighter, like you would you would start <laughs> to mix these things up and uh you know be able to flow seamlessly between them well i saw that a lot in um you know in my limited experience teaching one style was you know at at, as a student progresses in those early stages they all kind of look the same they're all doing the same techniques the exact same way but at some point you know the artistry comes into play and you know the personal style starts starts to uh come to the surface and you realize folks that have really long reaching legs end up utilizing those a little bit more folks that are sort of, you know, a little bit stockier, you know, use, you know, use their weight, use their power more. If you've got, you know, someone who's shorter, they're a little bit more evasive. And, um, you know, it's always interesting to see students branch off in that way, but, you know, it's kind of funny that he's teaching Westerners who are bigger, stronger, and so he's got to stay, he's got to stay on top. So he has to find another avenue around. That's kind yeah. of where the, where the personal journey and personal discovery in terms of martial arts comes in. So Bruce soon opens a new school in, in downtown Los Angeles. He doesn't really close his other school back in Oakland, but he, he lets one of his students uh, take it over. Uh, and so that the students who are learning there can t- keep learning there. He goes to Los Angeles uh, and it was there that he amassed a group of celebrity students that included like Roman Polanski, uh, Stephen McQueen, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, he also trained not only actors like Hollywood actors, but established martial arts masters like Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, and Mike Stone. Those three dudes at the time, and I know we Chuck Norris is like a meme now, but he was a badass as a, yeah. I say martial arts before he ever got into movies. Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, and Mike Stone, between the three of them, had won every major martial arts championship in North America. Like these guys are badasses and they're going to Bruce Lee to learn how to get better. Yeah. He gets sought out to like teach, you know, just technique and stuff like that. Now I've read some that, you know, he also pulled from Chuck Norris, some things, you know, like as far as learning some technique and that sort of thing. So they were kind of trading off, but 
they would want to spar together and learn more about right. fighting. And so, yeah, the, uh, it's it, it, you, you got a good rep if the baddest motherfuckers on the planet want to come to you to get better at being the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so a few weeks after the birth of his uh, second child, Shannon, in 1969, Bruce suffered a pretty severe back injury while lifting weights. And he was told that he'd never be able to do, he's like, forget about Kung Fu. You're not going to be able to kick anymore. And of course, Bruce is anything but a quitter, uh, but he did spend six months on his back recuperating and fell into like a deep depression. But after that six months, like, like he started training again, he got back to his old self, although that back injury would secretly plague him for the rest of his life. Also in 1969, he was the karate advisor on a movie called The Wrecking Crew, which starred Dean Martin and Sharon Tate. Uh, this is the movie that we see Tate watching in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the, the movie theater scene. Uh, Chuck Norris is also in The Wrecking Crew. It's his first like credited film role. He's got a small role in that as well. And then a year after that, he was a fight choreographer for a movie called A Walk in Spring Rain, starring Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn. So he's working behind the scenes on movies, and he's occasionally appearing on screen, either in small roles, like he was a, he played a, like a nameless hoodlum in the 1969 film Marlowe. He was in four episodes of the TV series Long Street in 1971, but he wasn't happy appearing in these just kind of small supporting roles. Like he saw himself as, like we said, he's arrogant. He sees himself as like a, a movie star, right? So when producer Fred Weintraub suggested, who, who was an executive producer on, um, on the Green Hornet and stuff that he'd worked on before, when he suggested that Bruce go to Hong Kong to make a feature film that would get the attention of Hollywood executives, that's what he did. So he goes to Hong Kong. Now, the thing is that I want to say too, I mean, we, we, we call it arrogance, but another part of Bruce Lee too is that he is, and, and this is probably like a discussion for like when we do a Bruce Lee series, which I am on board for, but mm -hmm. um, is that he's also, he cares about his culture. He cares about Chinese people. And, yeah. you know, and, and so at this time in cinema, they're largely just, you know, I, I've, I've seen it described as like, I think he thought of them as like sexless, like secondary figures you know, just out there, like they, they, they just don't, they don't matter. Like, you know, as no, lead no characters, ticky, no shirty. yeah, they're just of, like yeah. memes of who Chinese people are. And so all of this, so part of it for him too, was a chip on his shoulder about, I want to give recognition to who we are as a culture. Right. And what he didn't know when he went to Hong Kong is that the green, the green Hornet. So it had been showing on, on movie theater screens there and had been incredibly popular in Hong Kong and had been unofficially referred to as the Cato show in Hong Kong. Like Bruce Lee was considered the star of the show. And when he got off the plane, like it was a big deal. It's like a movie oh, star yeah. had arrived. Right. <laughs> when those, when those uh, international countries like latch onto a star, man, they, they go all in, man. Yeah. And that surprising success led Lee to negotiating a contract with two of the major studios there in, in Hong Kong. One was the legendary Shaw Brothers studio and one was Golden Harvest. Uh, he eventually would sign with Golden Harvest because the Shaw Brothers studio is more of like an assembly line and they were not offering him very much money uh, because mm. that's kind of what they did. Uh, we'll talk more about the Shaw Brothers in a, in a week or two. But he signs with Golden Harvest and his contract is for two movies. The first of which is The Big Boss in 1971. It's a big success 
in, in Asia. It's a big success over there, and it made him a star in Hong Kong, right? He follows it up with The Fist of Fury in 1972, which proved to be an even bigger success. It broke box office records that had been set by the big boss the year before. So practically overnight, Bruce Lee has become a superstar. Comes out yeah. of nowhere. Literally steps off a plane and becomes a movie star. Yeah, it's wild. Well, you're starting to find out. I mean, like now it's it seems crazy, but like now China's a huge market. Like China's right. as big as Hollywood or you know, the US as far as box office receipts, oh, yeah. you know. Oh yeah. So yeah. but but at this time, you know, I don't think the US really recognized what was popular in China, you know, right. they, they weren't getting, there wasn't the crossover uh, yet until, well, you could argue Bruce Lee, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Largely, <laughs> largely due to Bruce Lee. So after these two movies are done, his, you know, his contract with golden harvest has been fulfilled. He comes back to the U S and gets excited about developing this new TV series called the warrior, which is about a Chinese Shaolin monk traveling the American West. Uh, but he did not get the role because he was considered too Chinese <laughs> to play a Chinese monk. So oh, you can wow. see Bruce Lee here. You can find that obviously most of his issues with race were unfounded. Everything was fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what, what apparently what it was, according to the executives working on it, was I think one accent. of the executives had issues with his dirty knees. I think. <laughs> was a quote that i saw somewhere <laughs> oh my gosh i was like oh, that's Lord. that's awkward yeah specific yeah. very specific <laughs> but uh, and eventually a, a very similar sounding show called kung fu was released mm. and there were there were some lawsuits regarding that i won't get into that too much but in that one but it's, it's basically the exact same plot although they say that they had been developing this well before the warrior and it was a coincidence which you know is bullshit yeah but uh <laughs> kung fu if you're not uh, familiar with it was uh, a tv show in the 70s which starred an american actor by the name of david carradine who of course is bill and kill bill so uh it's all it's all connected here <laughs> it's all connected oh, yeah. also interestingly enough david carradine had unique techniques for other things as well <laughs> we so- just, we're not gonna get into it <laughs> <laughs> you saved those jokes for our Kill Bill episode. Sorry. <laughs> he did not have dirty knees. I don't think the rope let his knees hit the oh ground. My, oh, so my it, God. Well, <laughs> that's it. We're canceled. All right. <laughs> so after, after, uh, after this project kind of falls apart, he goes back to Hong Kong, starts renegotiating a contract with Golden Harvest because Golden, you know, his last two movies with them were incredibly successful. And that gave him a lot of negotiating power. So when he re-signed with Golden Harvest, they agreed to give him complete control on his next film. So on his next film, The Way of the Dragon, Lee had full control of the production, not only as the star, but as the writer, director, fight choreographer. He helped scout locations. He played the bongos on the on the score. Like he did everything <laughs> in this movie. Uh, now, I, now I saw that because he had that much control, he was asking for some really really weird things like he he insisted on putting urine in everyone's coca-cola and i thought that was that was a little far to go you used to be worried about me justin but now it is i'm no literally the shoe the shoe has moved to another absolute power corrupts absolutely and i think i think for him to request such a thing is very cancel culture gonna get you todd I was about to say the only way to combat racism <laughs> he is, at, is Mr. Todd A. Davis on Twitter. <laughs> Come at me. Not for long. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, man. So, and you, you have to realize how fast this is all happening for Bruce Lee. In 1964, he dropped out of college. By 1972, he's the biggest martial arts star in the world on the cusp of being an international superstar. Man. <laughs> in August of 1972, he began filming what was to be his fourth film for Golden Harvest, Game of Death, a film that he was once again set to write and direct. And Game of Death basically came about kind of by accident. So he planned to take a little bit of time off because he had a very grueling schedule for the last two years. And then he found out that his former student, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was going to be in Hong Kong. And when he found out Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was coming, he's like, I want to shoot some fight scenes. So he kind of quickly set this thing up and he set up these fight sequences hoping to turn them into the climax of his new feature that he wanted to work on. So, and I, I will go on a little side note, because I thought about this as I was writing notes on this. I was like, are some of our younger listeners going to know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when we, is when we talk about him as if you should know who he is? Right, um, right. For those who don't know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, if you've seen the movie, you've seen him. He's the enormous black man at the end. He's seven foot two. He's a professional basketball player. He's a pro- professional basketball legend. I uh, played for 20 seasons in the NBA, most notably. God. <laughs> uh, yeah, he played from 1969 to 1989. Wow. He was 42 when he uh, when he retired, uh, mostly with the L.A. Lakers. Uh, he won six national championships as a player. He later won two more as an assistant coach. Uh, by the time he retired in 89, he was the NBA's all time leader in points scored, minutes played, field goals made, block shots, defensive rebounds and career wins. Now, by the time he started filling his scenes for game of game of death he was still relatively new he was two and a half about three seasons into his career but even then he was already a major star he'd already won rookie of the year in 1970 while playing for the milwaukee bucks and then he led the bucks to their first nba championship in 1971 and the reason i say all this is because i I want you to understand that having kareem abdul jabbar in your movie was going to be a big deal this guy is a a major star he is incredibly well known in 1972 so -hmm. it wasn't just some random dude that happened to be a tall guy that was lee's student he was a box office draw potentially interesting there's so there and i will give him this i mean there's something about his presence um that that's very cool well his legs are as tall as bruce lee's entire body (laughs) that is very true So here is the sort of plot to Bruce Lee's Game of Death. So Lee plays the role of a character named Hai Tien, who's a retired martial arts champion who's confronted by a Korean gang who tell him the story of this pagoda called the Pao Seng Jean. And this is a place where guns are prohibited and where highly skilled martial artists are protecting something valuable in its top level. It's never really revealed in any of the any of the information found about this, what that thing might be. I don't know if Bruce had, it was, it's a MacGuffin for all intents and purposes. Mm. I don't know if Bruce had even worked out what it was going to be yet, but there's something at the top of this pagoda that all these guys are protecting that he has to get to. So the gang's boss wants him to retrieve this item and he refuses. And when he refuses, his younger brother and sister are kidnapped, which kind of forces him to participate. So the setting of the pagoda is this, um, this temple in South Korea called the Bio. Uh, Jusa temple it's a, a buddhist temple and at the base of the pagoda high it's not just him it's him and a group of four other guys and they have to fight 10 people all black belts in karate before they even get in right inside they encounter a different opponent on each floor each with a each person that they encounter a bigger challenge 
than the last and each with a different fighting style. That is very important to what Bruce Lee was trying to do with this movie. Mm. So his group defeats a kicking master. Uh, They defeat a guy who is a master in the praying mantis style of Kung Fu. And then Lee has to fight Filipino Escrima master Dan Inosanto, who we talked about before being one of Lee's former students. Mm -hmm. And then he has to defeat a Korean Hapkido master named Jin Hanje. And then finally, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who fights with a sort of style-less style is what they could. Well, sort, sort of similar to what Bruce Lee's like going for. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. So uh, that so he's got this this formless style, and that's kind of the, the, the final boss, if you will. And his character, because he's so big and because he's got such an unpredictable style, he can only be defeated once High recognizes that he has an unusually high sensitivity to light, hence the sunglasses that he's wearing when we see him in the scene. Now, this has all been culled from documents that were found later on. Uh, in truth, when he began filming, like I said, it was kind of on the fly. And he did not have a script. There was not a script to this movie. So it's not like somebody found a script. These are just notes that were found. Well, watch um, the, I, I've seen the movie twice here in the past two few days. And um, there's, there's clearly moments in the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fight where he, he gets thrown into the window and busts out the window. Yes. And uh, you could tell that's like significant for some reason, but then they totally just drop it. And then, uh, you know, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has got like on his shades the whole time. Yeah. Um, but that, that there's a reason for that. Yeah, he's always supposed to be in the dark and, and that sort of thing. So there's 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 obviously like moments in the fight that are just completely and workarounds that are being filmed uh, because it's just I, well, we'll get into it. Did anyone so, ever like take those notes and actually like put together even an animated hey, here's what Game of Death was supposed to be type thing? No, well, but we will get into some f- additional footage. that has been put together uh, that I actually watched last night. And um, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute, but there, there is more that exists of this fight uh, of this entire sequence than what you see in the film. Well, it's worth mentioning that, that I, I I got a lot from uh, I watched an audio commentary on the shout factory DVD from uh, Mike leader. Who's an Asian film expert. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that commentary is on the criterion release as well. Okay. Yeah. So that, it's pretty good. And uh, he, he goes, I mean, he goes, I'll never try to capture everything he talks about because he gives you details about every single location, all of those things. He's very good. It's a very good commentary if you want information about the movie. But yeah, he, he, he mentions in there that he's seen stuff that says there was like a hundred minutes of footage. That I, was I've seen that available. as well. I, I've seen that as well. But, but apparently a lot of that footage was just multiple takes. Because yeah, he, Lee he was says, such a Lee was such a perfectionist that he would often do things over and over. Now there is because I watched it, I can tell you that of completed footage that you could stitch together into a sequence, it's almost forty minutes of of film. Yeah, wow. yeah, and so that's where he goes in, and I know you, you we'll probably talk about it in a minute where that where you can catch some of that. But anyway, so this this plot though that we've just described, obviously, if you've watched this movie with us you know that that does not resemble the finished product at all. They only shot complete scenes for the last three floors, which was the Temple of the Tiger, which is where Lee fights Inosanto, the Temple of the Dragon, where he fought uh, Ji ha and then the Temple of the Unknown, which is where he fights Kareem Abu-Jabbar. Mm. Um, and then, so there was a Hapkido master by the name of Huang En-Sheik. He was supposed to, 
supposed to play the Guardian on the first floor. And then Bruce's longtime student, Taki Kimura, who actually is the guy who took over his school in Oakland when he moved to L.A., Kimura was supposed to play the Guardian on the second floor who fights in the Praying Mantis style, but those scenes never got shot. But Bruce Lee's intention for Game of Death was to be a film that truly showcased not only his martial arts techniques, but his martial arts philosophies. So in the film, as each martial artist is defeated, the flaws in their fighting styles are revealed. So Dan Inosanto's character, for instance, relies heavily on fixed patterns of offensive and defensive technique, something that Lee's Jeet Kune Do style specifically tried to break away from. He in the footage that in some of the footage that was cut from this, Lee actually Lee's character actually says like you can't rely on a routine. Like if you're doing a routine, like he's he's kind of trash talking the guy while he's fighting him. He's like, but he's like, if you're doing a routine, it's very easy for me to predict, you know. So yeah. which is and Jeet Kune Do was very much against the idea of having a set routine, a set list of moves that you're supposed to hit one after another so lee in in the movie in the the original movie lee defeats all of his opponents by having a fighting style that involves fluidity unpredictability and a blend of different techniques so production on game of death stopped in november of 1972 when lee got the phone call that he'd been waiting for his entire career and that's warner brothers hollywood comes calling and wants to make a movie with him. They give him the opportunity to star in Enter the Dragon, which is the first film to be produced jointly between a major Hollywood studio and a Hong Kong studio. So Enter the Dragon is directed by Robert Klaus. It was filmed between February 1973 and April 1973 with a planned release date of July 26th of that year. And the physical demands on Bruce during the filming of Enter the Dragon, not to mention the fact that he'd been going nonstop for two years with very little time to rest, uh, it took a toll on his body. Like it said that, you know, he was looking pale and he was looking gaunt. Like he looks very in shape in the movie, but if you compare him to, let's say way of the dragon, his previous movie, he does physically look skinnier in enter the dragon. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, re- I mean, he's, le- yeah, he's lean to start with, but like, yeah, there's a couple shots where it's like, Ooh, dude, he's really skinny. <laughs> but on, uh, so on May 10th, of that year, 1973, he was recording ADR for Enter the Dragon, and they had like cut off, um, they had cut off the air conditioning so that it wouldn't be picked up by the mics. So it's very warm in the room as well. And Lee goes to the bathroom, takes a break, and he collapses. And he's suffering from seizures and headaches. He's immediately immediately rushed to the hospital where doctors diagnosed him with a condition called cerebral edema, which is where um, excess fluid accumulates around the brain. So cut to a couple months later july 20th that year lee is in hong kong to have dinner with one time james bond literally one time james bond george lazenby (laughs) because lazenby was actually another one of his famous students and he had hoped that lazenby would appear in game of death once shooting on that film resumed later in the evening he goes to the home of betty ting pai which is a taiwanese actress another actress that he was wanting to talk to about being in in game of death and they're supposed to have dinner later that evening with Raymond Chow, the head of Golden Harvest, to talk about Game of Death. And so he goes over to her house and he complains of a headache. So Ting gives him a painkiller called Equagesic. I think I'm saying that correct. I don't know. Equagesic. Uh, It's a combination drug that contains aspirin and a tranquilizer. So around 7.30 that evening, before their dinner reservations, he goes to lie down for a nap. And when when Lee didn't arrive at dinner... Raymond Chow comes by Ting's apartment looking for him, but they can't wake Lee up. Uh, So they brought a doctor in, 
to, to check on him. The doctor spent 10 minutes unsuccessfully trying to revive Lee before sending him by ambulance to the hospital. And Lee was declared dead on arrival at the age of only 32 years old and just six days before the release of Enter the Dragon. Now, we got into this a lot on our Enter the Dragon episode, but there are a lot of theories that, uh, on what possibly caused Lee to die that day. It's a demon. Yeah, it was the demon from the yeah. from the movie. Yeah, from Dragon <laughs> the Bruce Lee story. It was it was a demon. Uh, it looks like a I, samurai. I think the most that whole, um, that whole story sounds very Heath Ledger. Yeah, I mean, I get well. Heath Ledger was it, was um, yeah, it abusing. Was he was he was abusing. He was mixing. Pills. He was mixing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Bruce was not. This was like a one time thing. He. I mean, he did take painkillers for his back, but mm-hmm. he wasn't by any accounts that I've read abusing them. This is an uh, unfortunate thing, or maybe he was, I mean, it was, you know, it sounds like he was overworking himself too. And, but it sounds like he was overworking himself. Um, there, there are a lot of people that say that he died of an allergic reaction brought on by the painkiller. Uh, that's the most commonly accepted version of what, what killed him. Matthew Polly in, in the book that you were mentioning, Gary, he theorized that, that his cerebral edema was caused by overexertion and a heat stroke. Because at the time, in the late 70s, heat stroke wasn't a condition that was very well understood. And Polly also says that Lee had apparently had his sweat glands under his arm and his armpits removed because he didn't like the way that it looked on screen. And if that's true, then... He's not like expelling the heat. (laughs) Yeah, so he very, very easily could get heat stroke. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, it's, it'll always be a mystery, ultimately. Unless you watch like, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Then you know the, the true story. There you go. Right. <laughs> Wasn't there someone who theorized or, you know, a rumor or whatever going around that um, that he was poisoned? That he that it, that it was the that, that was that, a rumor that, I saw the folks, that like the, 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 the gang activity or something, which, yeah, uh, that, you know, still wasn't cool with him teaching to westerners and yeah there's a lot of theories about the curse of the lee family um which well i think that that's goes something we to can the get into later and we could probably get into that if we talk about the crow one day yeah because yeah. yeah. i think that would be a an interesting thing to talk about then but it's all theory so you know but it's, right. it's an interesting story to look into when enter the dragon was released on july 26 1973 it made bruce an international star he had gone gone from being Hong Kong's most famous martial arts actor to the most famous martial artist in the entire world. Uh, but he was dead. He, so after the success of that movie, a lot of Hong Kong studios were worried that a movie that did not star Bruce Lee wouldn't be financially successful, at least not worldwide. So they decided to play on Lee's sudden international fame by making movies that vaguely sounded like they could be Bruce Lee movies. And then they cast actors who sort of looked like Bruce Lee uh, sometimes just from certain angles. Sometimes they just had similar haircuts. Uh, and then they would change their screen names to variations of Lee's name. Like there was uh, Bruce Lai. There's Bruce Lee L-I. There's Bruce Lee L-E. They were probably the two biggest ones. There is... There's uh, Bruce Leroy. There's Bruce. There's <laughs> Bruce K-L Lee. There's Bruce Ty. And then my favorite is Bronson Lee. And yes, he has a mustache. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfect. And, so with these films, the Bruce exploitation movie was born. And this is a movement that lasted basically from around 1973 to the early 1980s when uh, when basically when Hong Kong had a a movie star that could possibly be the next Bruce Lee and that's Jackie Chan. 
so he kind of became the 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 next one to sit on that throne. But until then, like they were just scrambling to cash in on the Bruce Lee name. Now, one of the films it's that pretty came, gross, to be honest. It's very <laughs> it's, gross. It's pretty gross. I, I absolutely agree. It's very gross. Uh, well, I say what, I say gross on the side of the studios, but I mean a lot of these actors are just trying to get their names out there. So I don't hold it. But there's not even their names, they're changing their names. Yeah, they're just looking for I, I don't know. I it's 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 disturbing. They could have just done their own. I don't know. I, I guess I'm thinking of where you're about to go with game of death. That's where it gets gross. Yeah. <laughs> like it really gross. Incoming transmission. Hey folks, it's your old friend Mr. Todd A. Davis from the Cinema Shock Podcast here to ask, are you tired of seeing a random episode of Star Trek and thinking, hmm? I wonder where this falls into the overall prime timeline. I know I am. That's why I'm bringing you a new podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. Each week, join me and a rotating panel of my family and friends as we boldly talk Trek like no one has before. If there's a joke to be made, we'll make it. And if there's a poignant discussion to be had, well, we'll try our best. We'll also have interviews, contests, take listener questions, and other things currently deemed classified by Section 31. Those shifty motherfuckers. So join us every week starting in January of 2021 for the Computer Resume Podcast. Free wherever you get your podcasts. And be the first to hit us up online now at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us directly at ComputerResumePodcast at gmail.com. The Computer Resume Podcast. Part of the Slice of Fry Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you soon. So one of the movies that could be considered one of the first, if not the first, Bruce exploitation movie came from actually an American producer, guy by the name of Lawrence Joaquin. So this is a fun story because Joaquin was looking for a hit and he was having a lot of bad luck. He wasn't having a lot of hits. So his 10-year-old son, Marco, suggested to his father that he try to get the rights to the Green Hornet TV series because Enter the Dragon was so big. And they wanted to, he's like, you can get the rights to the Green Hornet TV series and capitalize on Lee's fame. So Joaquin goes to Fox, who owned the rights to, uh, to the series. And then Fox, not thinking that the show was worth anything, because remember, it's only 26 episodes, lasted half a year, and it was a flop. They were like, this is not worth anything. So they gladly sold him the rights to all 26 episodes. And then Marco, this 10-year-old kid, actually takes the footage and edits footage from the TV series. I don't think he used all 26 episodes. I think he used maybe four episodes. But he edits it into a 90-minute movie. And it gets released theatrically in 1974 and is a big hit. It becomes the fifth highest-grossing Bruce Lee movie of all time. And it was just footage from The Green Hornet that was wow. edited by a 10-year-old. Uh, and of course, <laughs> its success is only serves to legitimize this idea to other studios, especially those in Hong Kong, who saw Bruce Lee and his name and likeness as a way to appeal to a worldwide audience. So that's where we get this string of 10-year-old editors. Yeah, yeah, that started um, that whole movement. Yeah, that. started YouTubing. <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, like that's where TikTok began. <laughs> yeah, exactly. there it is. <laughs> so with this movement, though, with this Bruce exploitation thing, and this is wild. This, this, I went down so many rabbit holes looking into Bruce exploitation because it is insanely interesting to me. Uh, the, the Criterion box set has a really great, about 10 minute conversation with Grady Hendrix, the author, about Bruce exploitation. Because among other things, I guess Grady Hendrix is a Bruce Lee and Bruce exploitation expert. But uh, it's fascinating to me because 
can you name another subgenre of film that was spawned entirely by the death of an actor? Like that's that's, ins- that's what an insane thing to think about. Yeah, not yeah, really but there'll sp- be uh, walk exploitation. Like Christopher Walk exploitation. I thought you were thought. I thought you were talking about Paul Walker. Oh man, that's, that's already the last Fast and Furious movie. Yeah. Okay. All right. Would be, yeah. <laughs> I, I, but, I, I would go for. I, I mean, this with you know, God bless him. God bless Fast and the Furious. But let's go with somebody with a distinct personality that you would try to exploit. You mean uh, like Vin Diesel? Yeah. If Vin Ben's Diesel ever dies. Vinsploitation. It rolls off the tongue. I'm going to be uh, honest with you. If 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 he ever dies, uh, and that's questionable, because um, <laughs> he is godlike, uh, I'll probably be the person that starts that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so with this movement, this Bruce exploitation thing, you had movies like Bruce Lee against Superman, where Bruce Lee played Cato. He, he Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee L I. I should say, plays Cato, which of course leaves character from the Green Hornet. And then another one, this is actually one that originated in South Korea, because these are not just being made in Hong Kong. These are being made in every Asian country that is making movies. They're all capitalizing on this. Uh, they made one called Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave, Woof. where in the opening sequence, Bruce Lee's grave is struck by lightning, which causes Lee to burst out of his grave. And that's this is all like in the opening sequence, and then the rest of the movie has nothing to do with Bruce Lee or this particular plot development. But it's got a really cool poster where Bruce Lee is cu- like half out of a grave and seemingly punching a winged demon bat thing. It's really cool. Great. I would hang the poster on my wall. That's, that's, I, I was sounds, wrong, I guess, about awesome. what was like really big exploit <laughs> exploitive of, of, of uh Bruce Lee. I guess that would really well that's probably... not the only one where he died, where that was a plot point. There's another one, and this is one that I and probably going to watch later today because I haven't seen it. And I found it streaming on that weird night flight streaming app. Nice. <laughs> uh, and it's called The Dragon Lives Again. It was released in 1977. And this movie sees Bruce Lee as a character, a character named Bruce Lee, played by Bruce Leong, or that the stage name Bruce Leong. Bruce Lee dies in this movie and goes to hell. Once he's in hell, first thing he does, sets up a gym to start training people yeah uh naturally but then things get serious when he realizes that he realizes that some of the most evil people in hell are attempting a coup they're going to take over the underworld and those evil people the evil people that he has to to stop include dracula the godfather the exorcist zadoichi the blind swordsman holy shit james bond oh Clint Eastwood, played by a Chinese guy, what the and, fuck? and Emmanuel, the the well, soft core, oh, yeah. And one of their schemes involves sending Emmanuel to have sex with the King of Hell, in the hopes that he will have a heart attack and die. I, I just gotta say that feels like a side episode. Like um, that should just be like a side, I'm not like even a bonus done. episode. I'm not even done. <laughs> Aiding Bruce in his quest to save Hell are the the from the fine, the famous Chinese folk legend, the One Armed Swordsman. Uh, also, Kane from the Kung Fu TV series. This time, actually played by a Chinese guy. Uh, <laughs> and David Popeye Carity. the Sailor Man. <laughs> what? Who at, who at one point in the film eats his spinach so that he can help Bruce Lee fight a bunch of mummies. Oh. So at the end, wow. we're on here. 
At the end, how, he defeats- is, how has McCarathon not worked this into <laughs> one of their viewings? Holy shit. At the end of the movie, he defeats these guys, but he still is mad at the King of Hell because the King of Hell has this pole that he shakes and it causes earthquakes. And he's, he, Bruce Lee doesn't like that. So he tells him, so the King of Hell, after he sees what Bruce has done to Dracula and the Godfather and the Exorcist and, and everyone, uh, he's scared of Bruce. And he's begging for his life. He's like, you can even have the throne to hell. Like, what do you want? You can have anything. So Bruce asks him to send him back to earth and put him, you know, bring him back to life, essentially, which he does. And then the movie ends with Bruce Lee ascending to the sky as everyone waves, like he's fucking Glinda the Good Witch from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> now, you keep saying Bruce Lee, but like, is it like the character is supposed to be Bruce the Lee? The character is supposed to be Bruce Lee. Wow, yes. that wow. is that is Holy something. Shit. Yeah. So like, and can, a lot of <laughs> can you imagine that? Like, I mean, if somebody just I don't know, just fucking busted out with what's like, the name of that one again, Justin? The dragon lives again. Dragon lives again. I'm fucking writing it down. <laughs> so it's just crazy. Uh, like if somebody just busted out with like Paul Walker fights from hell. Yeah, right. <laughs> like you're just—I don't so think the anybody devil, would be cool with that. There's going to be a race in hell, <laughs> and like the devil and Hitler and Mussolini, oh, and man, it's going to be like Drive Angry, but yeah. <laughs> but with with Paul Walker, a CG Paul, Paul Walker. Walker playing Paul Walker, <laughs> or Nicolas Cage playing Paul Walker. Oh, oh yeah, God. that's that's probably it. That's insane. <laughs> Uh, it's totally nuts. Anyway, there's a, there were like a hundred of these movies produced and a lot of them played, uh, they played on the names of Bruce Lee films as well. Like there was the new fist of fury, which uh, was actually directed by low Y who had done a fist of fury and, and uh, the original fist of fury and the big boss, both with Bruce Lee and uh, the new fist of fury actually starred Jackie Chan in one of his first starring roles. Uh, there was re-enter the dragon. There was return of the fist of fury. There was, exit the dragon like there's all kinds of goofy stuff there's even one that was less of a bruce exploitation, although it gets linked in called it's called enter the fat dragon i was about to bring this up <laughs> i was about to say like well even samo yeah was caught up in this like he well he, samo's like enter the fat dragon was like samo hung who is he's in this movie for for one thing in, in game of death but he's a martial artist he's also an enter the dragon he's kind of known as being husky we'll call him husky uh but still moving with i mean he's like an amazing martial artist he's at the beginning of enter the dragon right like he's the first guy he's the first guy that he fights and he's the guy yeah. that um that carl miller fights in this one and he also was the fight choreographer for game of death yeah he was things. uncredited in yeah. this movie i was gonna bring that up but yeah he was uncredited in this movie he he like in my opinion, it makes the movie at all watchable. Yeah. Uh, but but Sammo did a movie called Enter the Fat Dragon that was sort of more of like a comedy spoof about this like chubby farmer who's obsessed with Bruce Lee, you know? And then he played that character. So he wasn't like playing Bruce Lee, but it was still kind of playing on Bruce Lee's legacy. But yes, a lot of this, like Gary said, is kind of gross and very exploitative. I mean, oh, yeah. hence the name Bruce Bloitation. It's cashing in on the likeness of someone who not only died, but died at a tragically young age at like the height of his stardom, like on the cusp of international stardom. Yeah. Uh, but one studio who had avoided getting sucked into this Bruce Bloitation craze for the, all these years was Golden Harvest, even though they were sitting on actual new unseen Bruce Lee footage. But they eventually succumbed. They saw all the dollar signs because a lot of the, some of these movies made decent money some of them made really good money and they knew that they 
had the potential to make a little bit of money. So they created what is possibly the biggest of all Bruce exploitation blunders, <laughs> the 1978 yeah. version of Game of Death. It's sad that like you want there to be like so much more story involved with Game of Death. But really the story here is of how crazy this whole scenario is that the guy dies in the middle of making it. And, and right. we keep referencing Paul Walker, uh, hopefully respectfully, uh, but we, uh, we keep, we keep referencing him. And, uh, but that's the, that's the most immediate reference I can think of. of Someone like, dying in the middle of uh, production. Yeah. Yeah. So you're trying to figure out what you can do to salvage a movie out of, this scenario now right. with game of death though i would say there wasn't enough to salvage a movie probably right yeah right. but they were like we, fuck we, it we gonna do it anyway paul walker had shot what 80 percent probably probably of uh, the footage he was supposed to shoot right so it was a little bit easier there and you know cgi and stuff which they obviously they didn't have back then yeah i bounced between um this was a bad idea and well mark hamill and carrie fisher like you they've been able to do that with them maybe they should just remake game of death and as it was originally intended yeah (laughs) Yeah. uh do like a uh, little deep fake like get another martial artist and then deep fake his face right exactly Mm -hmm. so i'm like i don't know i don't know maybe maybe (laughs) i'm disrespectful but that that also seems like an option yeah uh so golden harvest founder raymond chow enlisted enter the dragon director robert klaus to direct the revised version of game of death now this version only uses uh, 11 minutes and seven seconds of the footage from the original film that Lee was shooting. Uh, Lee, yeah, like we said, he was he filmed for nearly two months. He filmed, I think Gary said, about 100 minutes of footage. But as I mentioned, a lot of that was just alternate takes of the same the same scenes. Yeah, like you said, there were a lot of reshoots. But uh, in in there's a documentary called Bruce Lee: A Warrior's Journey, and uh, so I'm jumping into that again. But the uh, in, in that I think they use like. What what did you say? Like was it? I think they use about twenty three minutes. In, in I think a that's Warriors what I journey. got too. Was like it's like twenty three um, minutes of usable the, footage out of yeah. it. And but, there was a rumor that there was forty something. So there. So okay, I will go ahead and say I watched. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I oh, there on on that new Criterion uh, release that came out last year, the Bruce Lee's Greatest Hits. One of the special features on Game of Death is a a. a, a presentation i'll call it called game of death redux and what this is so you got this guy who's i apologize i didn't write down his name but they got this guy to call together all the footage and construct a linear narrative from the time that bruce lee enters the third floor and actually not even enter like it starts mid-fight um but through the end and it's about 35 minutes long and I, I watched oh, wow. it last night, and it it is coherent, uh, a coherent thirty five minutes of him fighting the last three guys, and two of his. Remember, we said that like it was intended to where he had four guys with him. Mm-hmm. In the original film, the, two of those guys would have been killed before reaching the third floor. So he still got two guys with him. So like in the in this version of the film, you see him with nunchucks, right? Those yellow nunchucks. Yeah. In the original footage, you see what his two guys are still there with him, and they hand him the nunchucks. And there are some scenes where Bruce is fighting on one floor, and one of his other guys is fighting on another floor, and it cuts in between the two. And you see the footage of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar being blinded when Bruce Lee knocks the the window out, and the sunlight comes in. Like that's that's not just theoretical footage; it exists. It's there. 
and you can you can watch it if you have that Criterion Blu-ray. You can watch all of that footage, uh, and it's pretty incredible. Like those thirty-five minutes are better than the entirety of what we were given in nineteen seventy-eight wow. because it's all the same footage, but it's all of that footage. And this would have been in basically an entire third act of a movie at thirty-five minutes. You know which is just nonstop Kung Fu for 35 minutes, just Bruce Lee kicking ass. And there's a lot more dialogue in it. They had to dub it in this because the, I think the original, um, the original audio was elements did not exist. So they have somebody dubbing in Bruce Lee's voice, like an impersonator, but you, but they're, they're doing, they're saying what he's saying on screen. It's not like they're dubbing over something else. And you can see him, like I said, when he fights uh, Dan Inosanto, like he's saying, you know, your routine isn't going to get you anywhere. Like he's talking smack to him and stuff. And it's really, really good. And it almost makes you wish that Golden Harvest had just put out that 35, 40 minutes of footage, you know, yeah. instead yeah. of trying to cobble together what they, like they could together. have almost just sold that. Like here's yes. the last footage presented people, for Bruce Lee. People were so desperate to see more Bruce Lee that they would have paid Full price for a movie ticket for a 35-minute feature of that footage. I, I, I fully believe that. Yeah, yeah I was going to yeah, save this so. for later, but yeah, but we're talking about the release of this movie. Uh, the anticipation, you got to think, this is five years after his death. There were the yes. rumors of this footage. There was well, the discussion about right. it. I mean, obviously, you didn't have like the online community going ape shit for it or something, but it was already a growing thing. It, the only comparable thing would be, say, like, Star Wars fans getting ready for when episode one was going to come out. Right. Uh, obviously, there would also be some disappointment just like when episode <laughs> one came out. Similar reactions. <laughs> Similar <Yes>. reactions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were waiting for it, man. You, you talked about the yellow jumpsuit earlier on. That yellow jumpsuit was famous before this movie came out. Like, right. that, there's extra footage with the motorcycle gang that wears those jumpsuits yes. because the images of Bruce Lee had leaked of like him in that yellow jumpsuit. Like right. it was a big deal. Yeah. People were ready for it. So, so the new plot of this movie revolves around a character named Billy Lowe, which is not obviously the character that he, he had originally intended to play. And that character in this film is mostly played by a Korean Taekwondo master named Kim Taejong. And then in some scenes, a, a Hong Kong martial arts actor by the name of Yoon Bao. So these two actors, they fit, they spend most of the film in disguises, uh, wearing like fake beards or big sunglasses, or just they're just in the dark, you know, uh, yeah. in order to mask the fact that they don't really look like Bruce Lee at all. According to that commentary too, I was listening to, they also hired like some random Japanese or not Japanese, I'm sorry, Chinese businessmen. Um, there was a whole other story about Japanese that, that like one of the actors who was supposed to be one of the. Uh, fights in one of the fight seasons like a famous martial artist and uh he was he was on the side selling tickets to the location and he would bring people in and like the, <laughs> Jeez. and until the golden harvest like got on his ass about it so that's i was thinking about that but the uh but the chinese uh taekwondo expert and kim uh, that's kim, kim taejong kim taejong yeah yeah it, there was him and and and, and like you said yun bao and there was a chinese businessman that they hired off the street who kind of similarly was built like Bruce Lee. And they said that nobody even seems to remember what his name was or anything. And they would have him in a lot of those scenes where they just hit him in the shadows and that sort of thing. Um, 
which is very odd. But uh, anyway, it's worth mentioning that Taekwondo expert, uh, Kim Taejong, he, he plays Billy again in Game of Death 2. Yes. And uh, which I watched today. Yeah. He also <laughs> is in No Retreat, No Surrender, uh, which oh, yeah? introduced the world to Jean Claude Van Damme. Wow. He, he plays the spirit of Bruce Lee. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> but the, the, the actors, you know, they're in disguises, of course, but then the film will cut into like these brief close-ups of the actual Bruce Lee that were taken from his pre-Enter the Dragon films. And it's very easy to spot these for a variety of reasons, but especially because the film quality is really a lot more poor in the close-ups of Bruce. And then it cuts yeah. to like this much crisper picture uh, that was being shot by Robert Klaus. <laughs> and uh, and then in one scene, famously, of course, uh, in Billy Lowe's dressing room, a cutout of Lee's face was taped to the mirror to to cover up the stand-in's face. And you can kind of see his body bobbing behind yeah, it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's like only that one time, which means that they saw that and they're like, this is bad. We can't oh, do this man. anymore. And yet they did not edit it out. <laughs> uh, and then in, in one plot development in the film, the Billy Lowe character fakes his death uh, he, I mean, he gets shot. He gets shot in the face in a scene that strangely mirrors the circumstances of, around how Lee's real-life son, Brandon Lee, died on the set of The Crow, which is super right. weird. Yeah. Uh, but that fake death leads to his funeral. And Billy Lowe's character is very famous in the film, so a lot of people show up. And they used actual footage of Bruce Lee's funeral for this scene, including a shot of Lee's actual corpse on display. Uh. Now, talk about gross and exploitative. Yeah, that's that's cringy. Wow, that's, like, that's the part I'm talking about. Like that's the that's where it, it gets too much. Like yeah. you're like this is it's one thing to even show funeral stuff. I guess. Yeah. yeah, where you're yeah. showing actual mourners who were truly moved by his death, like people crying and wailing because they were actually stricken with grief, and then yeah. you're using that as a movie scene. You know, like, that's kind of fucked up. Yeah, I mean that's very fucked, fucked up. up. Not kinda. It's very fucked up. Yeah, yeah. It, it just it, it's insane. And then they they like I, I saw stuff from like apparently Bruce Lee's mother was in the audience on the premiere of this movie. Oh and my uh, god, you know, and then she was like very very upset by that and uh, just in, insanity. Like literally, like you've got this movie where you're like, like popping in and out of Bruce Lee uh, appearances, and then his fucking corpse is in the movie like that's yeah. legitimately his dead body uh, like on screen yeah it's insane yeah. line of thinking yeah so and the cast in a lot of this new footage which again is the majority of the film is new footage included several actors who had previously appeared in lee's films for instance robert wall who had appeared in both he was a villain in both way of the dragon and in enter the dragon he plays carl miller in this film now robert wall is a badass. Um, you lose, Carl Miller. <laughs> uh, he is a ninth degree black belt. Wait, I got this. I got this. Can I do this? Yeah. Holds ninth degree black belts in both American Tang Soo Do and Chun Kup Do under Chuck Norris. Studied and received eighth degree black belt under the founder of Taekwondo, General Choi. Received black belt at Okinawan Shura, Shurin Ryu under Joe Lewis in 1966 received black belt at Okinawan Okinawa Tei under Gordon Doversola in 1963 received a black belt in judo under 
Jean LaBelle in 1958, then earned black belt in MNA under Jean LaBelle in 1959. He also trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under the Machado brothers and held a black belt there. Uh, he, he basically, he holds a black belt and I will fuck your life up if you make me <laughs> mad. Well, he also opened a, he co-founded a school with Joe Lewis, who, as we mentioned before, was a, a pretty legendary martial artist in his own right. And yeah, Gene LaBelle, we've talked about on the show before, back in our Lethal Weapon episode. Yeah, I think he just uh, recently passed away, actually. Yeah. He also, Robert Wall also had a longstanding feud with Steven Seagal. Have you have you heard about this? No, but I'm no. so excited to hear so about it. So this this public rivalry with Steven Seagal, uh, there it provoked a series of challenges between the two between uh, the late '80s and the early '90s. It started when Steven Seagal, who, as we all know, is a fucking asshole, <laughs> like, <laughs> he starts making disparaging remarks about Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris and guys like that. And then this culminates, which in is a right couple... in line with the martial artist philosophy. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just talking shit. Yeah. Uh, and, and then this culminates in a couple of articles in a, a magazine called Black Belt, a martial arts magazine, where he claimed that he would fight to the death anyone who believed they could defeat him. So, <laughs> oh, Steve. <laughs> so Robert Wall is Robert Wall is obviously pissed because he's talking shit about his friends one of whom is dead you know yeah and he gathers a group of martial artists to answer that challenge a group that he called the dirty dozen uh nice. it included a i mean i won't name all the names because you're you're not gonna unless you're a martial arts enthusiast you're not gonna know any of them but gene labelle was one of the potential members as well and this dirty dozen uh I mean, some people in the martial arts community thought that they were kind of overreacting, like they were. There was some controversy around them, uh, and Labelle ended up withdrawing because he he said that the whole thing was kind of hurting him professionally, hurting his other his actual work. <laughs> Seagal never accepted the challenge, <laughs> so he he issued the challenge. They were like, "Yeah, bring it. We've got twelve dudes. Any one of these dudes will fight you." And Seagal never accepted the challenge. <laughs> Oh, all of that, though, I will say the uh, biggest achievement that Bob Wall probably achieved in his in his career is he is also the godfather of Freddie Prince Jr. Is he? (laughs) Wow. So so there's there's that uh, title you could bestow upon him. Um, No, but 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 seriously, Bob Wall is a badass and he's he's the only he's the only Westerner you're going to see in like most of Bruce Lee's movies. I think he's in three um he's he he yeah counting this one he's in way of the dragon and enter the dragon yeah so he's he's obviously a badass like he i mean he's in this movie for two of the non technically non bruce lee fight scenes right they're the best fight scenes in the movie yes uh you know where where uh what is it He, he takes well in the ring with sammo and afterwards yeah uh those are those are the two I, I would say they're they're pretty amazing. Actually, they're pretty pretty great fight scenes. So. Yeah, and then Sammo, of course, had uh, previously starred with Bruce in in Enter the Dragon, and as we mentioned before, is the uncredited fight court uh, coordinator on Game of Death. And then, in order to maintain continuity with the previously shot footage, both Dan Inosanto and Ji Hanje were given small roles as like enforcers for the gang of villains, so they appear 
in new footage as well as the older footage. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, though, he refused to participate for the reshoot, so they replaced him with another tall African-American stand-in when they needed, although the guy, you'll notice, never stands up because I imagine whoever he was was not as big as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. Well, there's a scene where they're at the cars where Steiner is there, like, talking to them and gets Bruce Lee to get out of the car, and he tells the girl not to get out. He's 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 visibly not as tall, but it's the same guy that is uh, the boat dude. on In Enter the Dragon? No, no. In, in this? Uh, in this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they asked, I mean, they, they tried when they were trying to piece this thing together. And, uh, you know, they, they, they tried to contact Chuck Norris about playing Steiner uh, initially in this movie. Uh, yeah, Chuck Norris up, does appear in it. In the movie. Yeah, well, so it ended well, that's up just that footage Chuck Norris from the denied Dragon. them. They wanted to do Steiner. Hugh O'Brien ends up in that role. Uh, but it, the role, they were trying to pitch it to him. was going to give you a large role, martial arts action, like you're going to get all this stuff. And... Ch- and he was but chuck was already becoming a martial arts star in the yeah. usa at this time and he turned them down and they decided this is a makes golden harvest sound even dirtier is they decided to go ahead and they were like well we're going to use footage from way of the dragon i mean they owned it yeah so and, so, and it allowed them to credit chuck norris and then they featured him heavily in all the promotional stuff. Yeah, even though he appears for about 30 seconds in the movie. Yeah, and then this from led to movie. Chuck Norris like threatening to sue them. Uh, and, you know, they were trying to credit. They, they acted like he was a lead in the movie, and he was right. not. Uh, <laughs> so he threatened, like, legal action. He, he said he wanted no part of this, and uh, they were giving him screen credit. But they also approached, like, Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Muhammad Ali. All, all guys who had trained with, well, not Muhammad, but James Coburn and Steve McQueen were yeah, and uh, they, former students. They all said that they felt that it exploited Bruce Lee's death, and they were not going to do it. They and, were not wrong. And, uh, <laughs> but, Same I mean, reason Kareem didn't want to do it. Yeah, these are all people that, like, I mean, the pallbearers at his funeral in 73 were Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Chuck Norris, George Lazenby, uh, Dan Inosanto, and Peter Chin and Taiki Kimura, who's another one of the fighters that, that carried yeah. on that Jeet Kune Do legacy, but, uh, and also Bruce Lee's brother. but uh, Robert Lee, who also cash in a little bit on Bruce Lee's death because he released an album of Bruce Lee themed folk songs after his death. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> oh my Bruce, God. <laughs> Bruce Lee L.I. was offered the role of Billy Lowe, but declined saying that he felt that it was disrespectful. Yeah. <laughs> and, because, well, and I think his reasoning was this was actually Bruce Lee's movie. This wasn't like right. one of these things I'm doing. Like, this is That's where he drew the line. Yeah, that's where he drew the line. So Game of Death 78, the, the soundtrack was provided by longtime James Bond composer John Barry. And at the opening titles of, or the opening credit sequence of this, very James Bondian. Very, yeah. <laughs> it's the a great opening. It's a great James Bonding. It's a great opening credit sequence, honestly. Uh, you start watching this, you're like, yeah, this is going to be good. And then it gets into you know, the rest of the movie. Mm, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then the movie starts. <laughs> <laughs> the film also featured a couple of Academy Award winners, uh, Dean Jagger and Gig Young. So Dean Jagger, who plays the like main bad guy, the old, the very cheerful old guy. Yeah. who's like the main bad guy. Uh, 
he, he Jack enjoys his, uh, his his stuff. <laughs> he, I, he just doesn't seem mean at all or threatening. He's well, just, you know what's nice funny is I actually <laughs> have become a, a, a Dean Jagger fan just because I watched White Christmas for the first time this past season, yeah. and he plays the colonel there. And I was thinking, like, I really like that actor. And then here he is again being an yeah. old ass. Um, of course, he's like guy. 80 years old in this one. But yeah, yeah. Dean Jagger well, you had been see in a, the one time that uh, Bruce Lee gets his, or, you know, that uh, Billy Lowe gets his hands on him. And he's like, chokes him out very calmly to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't want to hurt him. I don't want to break this guy. <laughs> yeah, he'd been in the film industry since 1928. And he had won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in 12 O'Clock High back in 1949. And then Gig Young, who plays Jim Marshall oh in the God. film. Uh, he was a three-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, he won the third time for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? in 1969. Uh, Young was also a severe alcoholic uh, and it was affecting his career a lot, which is why he's doing shitty exploitation movies. Uh, but his alcoholism had cost him roles in Blazing Saddles. Like Mel Brooks fired him off Blazing Saddles because he was showing up like drunk. And as Charlie in Charlie's Angels, Aaron Spelling fired him because he couldn't even, his alcoholism was so bad that he couldn't even perform in a role that is mostly voiceover. Yeah, so, and uh, the the important part to note here is that, uh, and, I, and I know where you're going with this, but he, who did he marry? It was uh, right before this. He was he married. He, well, he he married. He met his he met a wife while he was in Hong Kong. Is that who you're talking about? Well, I was going to say right right before this, he was married to Elizabeth Montgomery. That was like okay. his third wife. Yeah, who is like uh, Sam from Bewitched. Bewitched. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and. Okay. Uh, he was married to her and he had just divorced her. He's like, you know, look at him. He's the, he's the newspaper guy. He's, he's old yeah. as fuck. Yeah. He's and, 64 uh, years old. At this so point. he met his new wife in Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. was Kim Schmidt, who was yep. 31. Yeah. She's a German magazine editor. And then, so they meet in Hong Kong while he's shooting game of game of death. And then three weeks after they are married, Schmidt and young were found dead in their apartment in Manhattan Young had apparently shot his wife and then himself. Uh, so motive for this murder-suicide was never really discovered, but police said that there was a diary opened that they found in the apartment, opened to September 27th with the phrase, we got married today, written on it. So he had opened to the diary, his diary to the day that they'd gotten married and then killed his wife and then killed himself. Jeez. Yeah, it's uh, wild. It's fucking wild. Yeah. Big Young, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Big Young. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so for Chinese-speaking audiences, the film was dubbed in Cantonese and Mandarin and was edited significantly different, in, including a new opening and closing credits and then a new theme song and then most significantly probably a, a, a new fight scene with C Casanova Wong that takes place in a greenhouse. Now, Gary, you said your Shout Factory blu-ray has this version did you it does it does have the version with that fight scene in it um yeah did the you cantonese it? mandarin fight no i haven't i saw that it's on there yeah. long enough but i didn't get a chance to like i was just curious because the it. criterion does not have that that version on there so i was just uh curious about how it compares but i guess still the rest of the film is still the rest of the film <laughs> uh so well, it's it's considered i saw in some places like one of the you know the the best non-bruce lee fight scene but uh oh, yeah. i don't know i i really like the stuff with bob wall like it, that was all choreographed by samo yeah um all of those fight scenes i thought were fantastic for what they were doing also yeah, yeah. we gotta mention uh by the way uh colin camp um yeah who, who plays ann 
who plays uh, Anne, who uh, does actually seem sing the theme song at the beginning. She does. She yeah. was like in the Police Academy movies. She's mm-hmm. like Yvette and Clue. Yeah. And, uh, she plays uh, the wife of Noah Vanderhoff, Miss Miss Vanderhoff in Wayne's World. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that one. I didn't. I knew she was in Clue. I didn't know she was in Wayne's yeah. World. Oh shit. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I always worry that we're gonna not have enough to talk about with some of these movies, but then we always end up like we just have stories to tell. Like we all just find things to say about. Yeah these movies it's a lot of fun though i hope there's a lot of uh i mean you could call them tangents but this is all part of the tapestry of game of death you know like talking about gig young murdering his wife is still part of the story of gang of De- game of death because they met while he was making game of death yeah know? it's so weird <laughs> to think about that one just because of the idea that bruce lee also died technically in the middle of filming this and like it's just tied to these weird stories yeah you know? I got to say, like, just, you know, because I mean, clearly I don't do a lot of the research that you guys do. But this one for me is j- the the web of stories and pop culture influences and all that stuff is just super fascinating. The story really, of really the really the story behind this film is much more interesting than the film itself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I was going <laughs> to mention that in my in the wrap up. But yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, so so let's work our way there because I actually, yeah, I have similar thoughts, I think. Well, the film was released in Hong Kong on March 23rd, 1978, released a little bit later in the U.S. It came out in June of 1979. And despite the fact that it was blatantly trying to cash in on Bruce Lee's death, the film proved to be incredibly popular. Uh, the, it ended up being the second most successful film of Lee's career, just behind Enter the Dragon. Wow. Uh, adjusted for inflation, it made about $170 million worldwide. And I think this proves just how famous Lee was and, and like, and how much people wanted to see a Bruce Lee movie. This is why I said before that I think if they had just released that 35 minutes of footage, it would have made money because people would pay to see a movie with even they, they knew that Bruce Lee wasn't in this whole movie, but they would pay to see even a small amount a Bruce Lee on screen that proves just how enormously famous he was yeah. at this time. Well, it's, it's also like a, a testament to studios, not trusting the audience to get it or something at the time. And it takes forever. It takes up until right now that we're seeing like companies start to believe like maybe our audience is uh, sophisticated enough to handle like some weirdness. Like you're seeing, uh, you know, we are joking about WandaVision right as we started recording. Um, which is apparently like a very weird Marvel show, but it's like, because they've already established Marvel and they know it's a huge success that they can afford to be odd. I guess what I'm saying is, is like when, you know, when I mentioned earlier that this movie was as anticipated, you know, in this genre contextually, like it was as anticipated as episode one coming out was for star Wars fans. People just like, there's other Bruce Lee footage. There's right. there's more. You know, the images were everything back then. And like if it had been online, it would have all been huge just off of that. Just the image of Bruce Lee in the jumpsuit yeah. and that sort of thing. So people are like waiting for it. It's like they just didn't think that they could just show you Bruce Lee fighting. Right, they had to. Although that's what was it. selling the movie. That's, that's what we want to see. That's what. We're, <laughs> right. That's what yeah. we're buying a ticket for. And, yeah. and I think it's because Bruce Lee is so electric on screen. Like I, I was telling Todd earlier, Gary, that I I spent this entire week like I've been eating 
and breathing Bruce Lee movies because uh, I, I have been, I have watched every movie that he's made. I, I did not rewatch Enter the Dragon because I've seen that one so many times and I knew I wouldn't have time to watch them all, but I've watched every other one that's in that, that Criterion Greatest Hits box set. I also watched Game of Death 2. Like I have watched, I've watched five Bruce Lee movies this week, plus uh, just loads of special features and things like that. And the thing is, in all of his movies, and and this is, I would say the worst overall movie that he was ever involved in. Easily, uh, that's not discounting his work on the film. It obviously is not his fault that the rest of the movie wasn't great. But he just every time he starts fighting, it is, you cannot take your eyes off of him. And it's not just because he's such an impressive martial artist, because he is, but he's doing something so distinctly different than what other people do. And he's got a screen presence. Like even when he's doing other things, like even when he's not fighting, there's a scene in, I think it's um, the Fist of Fury where he does this, he puts on like, he he dresses up like a phone uh, repairman. And he's doing this goofy, like, Jerry Lewis, Master of Disguise routine for 15 minutes in the film. <laughs> and it's a pure comedy performance in the middle of the film. He changes his entire body, uh, like his body language, where he's kind of slumping over and being goofy. He's got this goofy grin on his face, these big Coke bottle glasses. And he's really good at it. Like, he's really good at that. Like, he could have been a movie star that it was known as more than just a great martial artist. Yeah. Uh, because he had screen presence. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly something special about Bruce Lee that just like uh, I literally last night uh, as a, on the wrestling podcast, we were having a discussion about just famous wrestlers and talking about um, I'll make this relevant is that that it was, uh, you know, I was just saying that like sometimes there are people that just have it. Like they just yeah. do. And it sucks. Yeah. It sucks that the world works this way, but this is the way of the world that sometimes charisma just radiates off of some people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They just dictate yeah. Hulk Hogan did three fucking moves, you know, yeah. like he wasn't the greatest wrestler <laughs> in the world. Nobody would ever say that, but something about Hulk Hogan just made him the most famous wrestler ever. You could his, say that about the time. rock or about John Cena as well. They, they, yeah. none of them were great technical wrestlers. Uh, they're better than Hulk Hogan, but none of them were great technical wrestlers, but they were, they got by on their sheer charisma. age presence. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Charisma. And Bruce Lee has that. Bruce Lee just has like this. But the this thing is, presence. Bruce Lee's got the skills too. Well, he does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he does have the skills. In fact, uh, one of the things about this movie that I love too, is that, uh, you know, I, I was reading a lot into Samo because I, I do think we should do like a whole thing about him. He, it, and it hit me a lot with uh, the the commentary I was listening to, you know, just saying with uh, with Mike Leader, just saying he feels like he's really underrated, like he's not appreciated. Somehow he never got that. But this is a guy like George Lucas was seeking out, like who initially he, George Lucas wanted to choreograph the lightsaber fights and stuff like that. Like that's, yeah. He, he was he was known but like you had to be kind of nerdy to know him and uh it, it it just at this time another thing to think about that I that I picked up was that kung fu movies these kind of movies had come so far in five years you know everything just like increases exponentially so by the time that game of death was released um fight scenes were choreographed at a much higher level. Like they were already like surpassing what had come before. Like they were doing like more acrobatic, more crazier stuff 
going on in on screen than what you would have had in game of death but samo who had been doing these movies pulled himself back as a huge fan of bruce lee and as a friend of bruce lee and known bruce lee to like try to establish so when i talk about the bob wall like uh like in the gym after the match or in the match itself like in 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 the macau stuff uh he's very much trying to smoothly transition to make those fight scenes not seem out of place from the stuff that you're going to get from bruce lee later on in the film like when you actually get right. bruce lee and it's not knocking bruce lee by the way it was just at the time this was advanced for what cinema was doing and this is still like five years later you know yeah well the, the ironic part about that is that bruce lee's fighting style kind of changed the way that the, the, the action was choreographed on screen because especially right. in hong kong cinema prior to bruce lee it was a lot of like wuxia movies where people were uh, on wires and they were they were not moving in a way that humans really move you know if you've seen crouching tiger hidden dragon that's a modern example of that style of film uh, and there's nothing wrong with wuxia movies bruce lee was actually supposed to make one uh, there are images of him made up uh in in costumes and like a hairpiece, you know, with the with the knot on top for to be in a wuxia movie that never got made, but that's a very different fighting style than what Bruce introduced, which was more grounded in reality. Yeah, well, that was the thing. It's like he's he's doing these fight scenes, and it's it is grounded in reality, and it's more like straightforward fighting, like in those scenes. And uh, so, so it's kind of like Sam- the, it's kind of like I equate it to like the Matrix versus like transporter like the transporter stuff is a little bit grittier yeah sure. uh, as opposed to the matrix stuff which is just kind of like super stylized yeah, yeah ironically the matrix is heavily influenced by uh, uh right. by bruce lee right yeah and like I mean, kim even, Tai-Jong Neo was, even does the nose the nose does the nose thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> kim Tai-Jong, who's the taekwondo like the south korean taekwondo expert like he's famous for his kicks and just like uh he's He's like a kicking expert, which I think initially was an idea for like the the levels, like going up the levels, which reminds me of the raid, by the way. Yeah, le- well, uh, yeah, the raid is very much a uh, descendant, let's say, of, of this movie. Yeah. Or but, Dread. Uh, Samo had choreographed Kim Tajog to just like, let's pull back, let's focus in on the Bruce Lee style at this time. This is what he would have been doing. Not saying like, Nobody there is disrespecting by saying Bruce Lee wouldn't have also evolved. It was right, just right, like, right. let's make this all fit in with fit the footage that the, the footage we're going to have to use. Right. So the movie comes out and critical reviews were mixed. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was criticized were the scenes that seemed to be in bad taste, like the funeral footage. Obviously, was one that was pointed out regularly, or scenes like the obvious cardboard cutout taped on the mirror. You know, critics saw that and were kind of goofing on it, but you know, they did praise the fight scenes and things like that, all the same things that we're praising. Oh, but Gary, do you know where we're going with this? Oh, I do. I do. Some people just <laughs> lost sleep over this movie and uh, they, they just, they, they couldn't stand how bad they thought it was. And uh, well, Justin, Todd, it sounds like somebody needs a nap.
We'll start out with an easy one. This is DF over on Amazon. Uh, he says, uh, only one person found this helpful, by the way. <laughs> one out of five stars. His review was, wow, 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 wow. That was his review. That's his whole review? That's his whole review. How's that spelled? It's uh, spelled W-H-A-W-H-A-W-H-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A. One star, huh? One star. One star. Let's see. Here's Spooky Brattleworth says, Should have never been made is the title of the review. Simply put, this is a disaster in conception and execution. The original material shot with Lee could and should have been used in the documentary or as extra scenes in the documentary and be left at that. To go and make this abomination beggars belief and is nothing short of an insult to the memory and the man himself who would surely be turning in his grave at this monstrosity. One example, you can see a lot of feet kicking in Kung Fu, right? Right. Lee is wearing iconic black and yellow odd Mitsuka tigers in his original footage, right? Damn right. Iconic. So why would you draw more attention to the fact that you have stand-ins with black and yellow Adidas on? Dumb. At least copy correctly. <laughs> this person says their title of their review is Game of Boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is the martial arts How clever. <laughs> This is the martial arts version of Plan 9 from Outer Space, only not nearly as funny. When he died, <laughs> Lee had only shot part of what he hoped would be a masterpiece of martial arts movies. Stuck with little film and no clue what to do with it, the producers hired a kindergarten class to write a script. They hired a man who looks nothing, repeat nothing, like Lee, and they cut the fights that were filmed and got this cinematic version of Goulash Nothing about this movie is good except for the brief time Lee is on the screen. And to add insult to injury, in some scenes, they actually use a cutout picture of Lee superimposed over the double's face. Just lousy. Not even superimposed, by the way, sir. No, uh, it's, it's just taped on It's there. just a cardboard cutout <laughs> tape. Last but not least is what they say. This movie is horrible. Like the part where Billy gets shot and they think he's dead when really he isn't. But I did like the end where he fought Kareem Aldemar. That was interesting. Kareem who? <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> I did like the end where he fought Kareem Aldemar. That was interesting. <laughs> Even a Bruce Lee fan wouldn't like it. And is Kareem is Aldemar that related um, to, to General Kareem Aldemar? Who is, he, um, is he the long lost brother of Pedro Om Aldemar? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, I got two more from IMDb. One is uh, Tragedy is the title of this one. You're telling me he died from an allergic reaction from something he took regularly? No, it was a cover-up of the coroner lied to keep the peace because they didn't know who did it. What? Whoa. That was the one star review <laughs> for Game of now, now that I'm done watching now that I'm done watching this movie, I'm going to the Capitol. <laughs> yeah. We'll get a, a little bit from uh Sarah Stro. She says, uh, worse than laughable. If you thought Ed Wood's movies were bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here we have a movie built around a dead guy with a story almost as dead as the poster child. Oh, er Jesus. <laughs> Ergo, we see Bruce Lee from the back, Bruce Lee from a distance, Bruce Lee in large dark glasses, Bruce Lee's face in shadow, etc., etc. And we hear recordings of Bruce Lee's kung fu sounds, probably mixed in with some non-Lee imitations, being played over and over and over, sounding misplaced and absolutely awful. This is not a Bruce Lee movie. It is almost Bruce Lee-less. 
And tackily, <laughs> scenes of Bruce Lee's funeral are used to illustrate the fake funeral of the character of Billy Lowe. It is the very definition of a travesty. All the characters are walking cliches that can only be laughed at. If even that, the story is basically about tracking down bad guys and brutally killing them. Whoopee! There are a couple of <laughs> semi-interesting fight scenes towards the end, but even they, as well as the in and of themselves less than terrible Bruce Lee stand-ins, I'm actually a big fan of Yud Bio, cannot salvage this movie from the abysmal status as one of the most embarrassing movies that has ever been made. <laughs> well, man, here's the thing. Like, normally when we do these Somebody Needs a Nap, segments i'm like these people are ridiculous they're you know this is silly I was in say. this case i'm like this is one of the few cases so far where yeah. i'm like they all kind of got a point yeah because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this one is it's tough to review game of death because this is not bruce lee's game of death right. uh, the film shares a title with a film that lee had hoped to complete and got a few minutes of footage shot but this is just another bruce exploitation movie this is just a bruce exploitation movie where the producers happened to be lucky enough to own some footage that people had not seen of Bruce Lee. Because what Bruce Lee could have made, what he was working towards, could have been his masterpiece. You know, th this was supposed to be kind of the distillation of his Jeet Kune Do martial arts philosophy. The idea yeah. that one's approach to combat has to be malleable. One has to be able to adapt the skills that are brought on by one's opponent. One has to be uh, you know, Jeet Kune Do is the intercepting fist. The reason he called it that is because you have to, when you see somebody attacking, you have to be able to intercept and adapt to their style. That's why it's called that. Lee famously said, and there was even a documentary out last year by this name, be water. He says, you put a water in a cup, it becomes the cup. You put a water in a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot and it becomes the teapot. Like that is the philosophy behind Jeet Kune Do. And that's what he was hoping to get across in this movie and i really truly think that if he had been able to do that this would have been considered like his his masterpiece yeah i'd, I'd have to agree it's just this is one of those things where it's they could have gone a couple different directions and salvaged you know uh, it made money so at the end so in the end i guess it is successful but in terms of respect for arguably one of the most famous uh, personalities uh, in the 20th century, not to mention the godfather of uh, many different schools of thought and martial arts. You can't help but think it was like, really, was this, was this the best idea? Was this the best direction to take? Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, hindsight being 2020, uh, you know, the answer is no. Yeah. I, I think, I think they would have done, I think it would have been better to have to have this be a full length documentary building up to, Hey, let that documentary build up to, Hey, we've got this 30 minutes and just let the last 30 minutes be what it is, which right. I, it seems like which anybody, exactly what, anybody you um, talk to is like really game of death. It's the last 20 to 30 minutes. That's yes. really great. And just build to that and let it be interviews with everybody. And, you know, uh, you know his students and all that, and just, just a tribute to the let life it let it be a celebration Lee. of the yeah, man yeah, rather than yeah. Terry, a, a poor, very poor representation of a shadow of what he was trying to do. 
So, right. and, and that's what that the documentary that came out in uh, 2000, Bruce Lee, a warrior's journey, I think it was released originally as a, um, a supplement on the enter the dragon DVD, mm-hmm. uh, the two disc special edition, but Bruce Lee, a warrior's journey as of right now, I, this is one I, I mentioned to you a couple of days ago, Todd, but it's on yeah. Amazon prime as of this recording, it's about 90 minutes long, but it is essentially a documentary about Bruce Lee's life. And it's a, like a biography, but then the last, 25 minutes or so are uh, is footage uh, from game of death and more footage than you get in the actual movie. But I think even, and, and now 20 years after that was released, that footage that the, the game of death redux that's in that criterion box said like, that is the ultimate version of what we want to see out of this. You know, it is, it is as close to Bruce Lee's intention as we'll probably ever get. Because the, the thing is the, the movie itself, the game of death that we got, while it does showcase some iconic imagery and some of the best fight choreography of Lee's career, because those last three fights where you actually see Bruce Lee, it's a game changer in this movie. Like you're watching this movie and all of a sudden it gets to that part and, and it you can almost physically feel it an uptick in quality yeah you know? yeah absolutely. Oh, well, um, you can because he's also like right up against like other martial arts masters right he's, he's in there even kareem abdul jabbar who is one of his students is allowed to like flow as smoothly and, and quickly like they're there there's no holding back in those moves right. so the closest thing you get to it is probably when you see like bob wall and uh and Samo like take on each other in the uh, in the move, and you can look and see Bob Wall's or no Samo's bruises on his body. And uh, according to stuff I saw, I mean those are legit bruises. Like they're just redoing, reshooting, like yeah. taking. They're fighting, and it's like, yeah, okay, like the fight scenes are fake, but when you're trying to actually display fighting, like you're gonna get hit. It's just like the only time you get pissed off, according to some of the stuff I was reading, it was like, you know, like I'm going for your face. And so you have a second to tits up your face. Like you're going to get hit in the face, but then they hit you in the gut. Then you're like, what the fuck, dude? It's like, it's probably like a lot like professional wrestling, to be honest with you. Like, it's probably like, I didn't want to be the one to make that comparison, but like, (laughs) yeah, it's It's just, there's only so much that you can, that you can, quote unquote fake right right um you know taking a hit's taking a hit <laughs> yeah and, and i i like i said i i kind of lived and breathed bruce lee movies this week and i watched them all and he progressively they're all really good like all the movies that he's all the kung fu movies that he started and obviously we talked earlier that he'd been in quite a few things as a as a youth but he progressively gets better and better in each one of these movies and each film is better than the one before it and I believe that's a, th- uh, that's a trend that would have continued with his planned version of Game of Death. I think this would have been the culmination of everything that he had been done before. But then the version we get, because it's so wrongheaded, it yeah. just comes across as exploitative and goofy. And it is very clearly a cash, uh, cash grab trying to just make money off of somebody's image that it is no longer like, with us and it's disrespectful it's very disrespectful to a guy who is one of the greatest movie stars of all time who became one like, of the greatest movie stars of all time with only four movies under his belt don't you feel like they could have almost like what if they did just take a game of death and give it about writing credit 
on it or something. It just or a directing credit because he directed yeah. the whole last action yeah. movie. It just <laughs> just went with it and just went with like a new cast and do the movie, you know. But don't you know? You save like Todd said for for a documentary, maybe like the initial Bruce Lee stuff. Like yeah. it's not that the story is bad or it's not. I mean, like if you went with his original story, by the way, right? Um, right. That. You know, you could have just done the movie, you know, hire these people, hire uh what's his face to do the Taekwondo stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like let's uh yeah. uh Kim Taejong, um, like hire him to be the guy. But you know, like let's let's just not try to make you think he's Bruce Lee. Let's just try to do this when movie. he's clearly not Bruce Lee. And then the movie <laughs> it's very obvious that he's not Bruce Lee in the movie. Yeah. And they try to do all these little dumb tricks to get to kind of hide Billy Lowe's face. And, you know, well the weird either- part, Justin, is that like they don't even they don't even it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to where they're hiding and where they're not. Right. Yeah. yeah there's the scene where he like the scene with the um the mirror where he's in the his dressing room and he sits down and his face is the actor's face is very clearly visible. Then it cuts to a reaction shot of Bruce Lee from another movie where he's clearly in a different, completely different room. Right. Uh, and then it cuts to that cardboard thing all within one scene. <laughs> like yeah. it is yeah. inexplicable. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's yeah. so goofy. And then it does this thing. The movie does this thing where Billy Lowe has an excuse to get plastic surgery, which would have been a good reason for why his face looks different if they'd done it earlier than like 35 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Right. And then, and then because they had to cut in footage of, then there's a scene where because they had to cut in footage of an old, an old Bruce Lee fight that, inexplicably Billy Lowe no longer has these like scars on the side of his face for one scene so that it's in continuity with the Bruce Lee footage. And then he's back to it. The next scene and puts on a beard on his face when he's already had plastic surgery uh, to change his face. Like why is he even having to wear a fake beard and why is he wearing a Brown beard when he's got black hair? (laughs) There are so many (laughs) dumb decisions that are made. Yeah. Cause when I, when I saw those like, Okay. Okay. So they're going with, they're going this direction. All right. So the, this is going to, it was rough at the beginning, but this is going to smooth out a little little bit. No, it doesn't. No, (laughs) that's it it too. For me, dude. Like I was like, Oh, they're going to do like uh, he's disfigured now. So then we're going to change his face. Like it's like face off. Or something. Yeah, but they don't, they don't don't face off it. They give him two slits here. Then he puts on a fake. He makes a fake beard. He draws it with a fucking magic marker on his eight by eight <laughs> on not even his face on actual Bruce Lee's face. Uh, and you have to wonder, like, uh, there's a there's a whole rabbit hole you could go down about the fact that. Like Western audiences, like, do they think Western audiences are not going to be able to tell one mm, Asian man from another? Just not be able to tell right. the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. That's a yeah. that's a hard one to hit, but yeah. Uh, also, uh, another aspect of it now is like I always wish they hadn't done this just because of the fucking death scene, the quote unquote death scene of Billy Lowe, where uh, it mimics exactly Brandon Lee. Like it's, it's yeah. like, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that's a bummer. Like that's a yeah. uh, what a way to go. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, there was that, and I'm still floored by the funeral footage. Because when I was when I was when I when Kat and I were watching it, uh, and I was just I was looking at that, and I was like, 
okay, I know that they've they've cut in some stuff that was clearly not for this movie, but this looks very authentic. Oh, and then like the shot of him in the coffin, and I was just like, Jesus what? Christ, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so I have to ask that's you, either, Todd. That's either a really great prosthetic. But then you see the prosthetic and the guy, then the guy breaks later and you're, you know, clearly they are, they cannot make a great prosthetic. No, no. Because <laughs> the guy pokes the porcelain one later and it doesn't yeah. look anything like Bruce Lee or the guy who's playing Bruce Lee in the movie. Right, right. So Todd, I, I want to ask you then, when you watch this movie, mm-hmm. did you know the context under which it was made? As in, meaning, did you know that it was going to include footage of actors that are standing in as Bruce Lee. Cause I think that's a big part of how someone experiences this movie. If you watch this movie and you don't know that, then it's going to be incredibly confusing. It's going to be I jarring in, as fuck. Right. I went into this pretty cold. I knew, I knew that, uh, I knew that this was the film that he died and I knew Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in it. Um, and I, I think that's all I knew going into this. Like I said, I, I try, I try to go into these pretty cold and um, I, I knew I I don't want to keep going back to my, to my martial arts experience, but like, as we were watching without, even with the face covered as much as I I was looking at the guy and telling cat, I was like, that is not Bruce Lee. He's like, well, how do you know? I was, he, he looks pretty close. I was like, he does not move like Bruce Lee. Nobody, Nobody does. Like Nobody Lee. does. Yeah. Uh, you know, and martial artists tend to look at um, their opponents, especially folks they train with fairly closely or fight on a regular basis and see their movements as kind of a fingerprint. And Bruce Lee is so well known, even, even with the limited uh, number of films that were under his belt, there was enough of him to know if you've watched any of it he has a, he had a very distinct fingerprint mm-hmm. and it, you can pick it out i mean this guy don't get me wrong this guy that they got i'm sure did as best he could with he's what he's a he good martial with. artist yeah but he's not bruce but lee. he's not bruce lee so it, it's it's he'd know. still kick my ass uh, yeah <laughs> you know the interesting part about this for me uh to throw in here too is i went down a rabbit hole of reading about uh given the circumstances of why we're discussing this movie the the overarching project we're on with quentin tarantino and kill bill um this is this one is more interesting than the others in some ways in in the fact that Quentin Tarantino has gone on beyond Kill Bill to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and actually depicting Bruce Lee. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I have a real. I have. <laughs> and and so it yeah. was not met. only depicting Bruce Lee, but depicting other parts of this story, like Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and the Wrecking Crew, the movie that Bruce Lee was the coordinator on. And not only that, but Cliff Robertson, the character that Brad Pitt plays, is based on Gene LaBelle. Mm, interesting mm. yeah so wow. uh it, it's it's an interesting concept because i mean he was met with some some uh dissatisfaction Criticism, including from kareem abdul jabbar yeah and bob wall like yeah. he people that were not fans of quentin tarantino's portrayal of of bruce lee on screen and yeah. uh that was i mean i i could just tell it just straight out and we can get you guys 
thoughts on this, but like, I mean, I know when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did a whole thing in the Hollywood Reporter, I believe it was like mm-hmm. about this and how Quentin Tarantino's portrayal of Bruce Lee was racist and uh, that he was, he was saying that, you know, amongst other things, like one of his big issues was, he's like the fact that Quentin, that Bruce Lee is portrayed in this fight scene with Brad Pitt's character in the first place. Well, actually, I think he and Bob Wall both testified to like, I was in multiple places with Bruce Lee where people picked fights with him and he walked away from all of those fights every single time. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) the thing is, and this is maybe a conversation for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode down the line, but I I feel like the difference is that he's creating a a new character, a fictional character, who in the fictional world that Tarantino creates in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is a guy who could potentially beat Bruce Lee, right? Not in real life. Nobody in real life could beat Bruce Lee. But in the world, in, in this world of Quentin Tarantino, which already is an alternate history where the Manson family gets stopped and where Hitler gets shot in the face with a Tommy gun, right? Uh, this is a fictional world. And Brad Pitt's character, yes, was based on guys like Gene LaBelle, but he is not, he is a fictional character. Well, and, and, and to be fair, because I'm, I'm also with you on that, but then also a point that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar brought up that I, that I kind of mentioned earlier, but that I thought would be worth mentioning for the sake of argument is that he was saying these characters like Brad Pitt's character are playing these John Wayne old school like white guys that are stuntmen and they're coming in here and they think like, Oh, your Kung flu fancy stuff. Does not work here? Like we're badasses over here. He was like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was pointing out. He's like, this is literally the stuff that Bruce Lee was opposing his whole yeah. life. This is what he was fighting against yeah. was like these guys coming in here saying his crap was stupid. And you and know, like kick it, your ass and we'll kick your ass. Like that doesn't make sense. And he's like, Bruce Lee had to like fight to make himself relevant. Yeah. And no, I, I, I think, and I totally understand that argument. I, think, I really do. I think it speaks to uh, two things. I think it speaks to how, how, how we hold our pop culture figures, especially here in this country um, with reverence of, you know, of a philosopher of a teacher of a guru a lot of people think bruce lee like i mentioned it at the top of the episode they have this they have this notion that he was this great philosopher no he was just a guy and then the the staying power of someone like bruce lee yeah you know when uh when when muhammad ali passed away which wasn't that long ago he hadn't done anything in the public eye for couple decades yeah and people went nuts bruce died what when did he die 74 73 73 yeah like and people to this day yeah like again it's a fictional it's a fictional representation that quentin that qt put forward and people were pissed about it i can't i to be honest i was kind of i sat and watched the movie and was just kind of like this is kind of bullshit but yeah i i get it i mean i, I definitely get the argument I, and i i get both sides of that yeah. um i i get where everyone in that argument is coming from but yeah you're right i mean the the way that we see 
legends like Bruce Lee is really interesting. Like I, I think of James Dean as well, another another uh, movie star that died very very young, uh, even younger than Bruce Lee, and with less movies under his belt. But he's seen as like this this Hollywood icon. But that's partially spurred by the fact that he did die so young. You know, uh, same with uh, uh, Kurt Cobain. I was know? about to say, I mean, the <laughs> other one you can think of is Kurt Cobain. Like, what would he be doing right now? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. He was like Bruce, little... Bruce Lee would have turned 80 years old this past year. What oh, would he wow. still be doing, you know, if he'd lived that long? If he was anything like my grandmaster was, he still did it. He, did, he did it till the day he died, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, well, here's the thing with Game of Death. Just kind of in closing, it is a not a good movie. No, I think we can all agree <laughs> yeah, on that. It yeah, is a right. it is a goofy ass movie. I think Robert Klaus, the director, did his best with what he had to work with, but I think it is it is just the the blatant exploitative nature of of it that's that is just icky. Yeah. But then you get to that finale, you get to those last twelve minutes or so of the movie, yeah, and you get to see and you are reminded of just how good Bruce Lee is, and those last twelve minutes are fucking glorious. Like yeah. they are, especially compared to the previous hour and 45 minutes or whatever you've been hanging out in the rest of this movie, those last 12 minutes are like a revelation. And you're like, this is not only great, this is the possibly the best thing Lee has ever done in these moments. And so it, it really makes you even more sad about the rest of the movie and the fact that you didn't get to see his final vision really on screen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely and, right. And then, oddly enough, we we mentioned it in passing, but this movie, like we said, it was successful enough to garner a sequel. <laughs> game of Death Two came out in 1981, and it uses some of the same tricks that this Game of Death, Robert Costa's Game of Death, does. It recycles scenes of Bruce Lee from his older movies. Uh, I watched it this morning. I'd never seen it, and it is, I'm going to say, a better movie than Game of really? Death. Really? Because it does this thing. So it's got the same. Uh, Kim Tai Chung is playing Billy Lowe again. He returns as Billy Lowe, but Billy Lowe dies, like actually dies about half an hour into the movie. And then his brother, who is also played by Kim Tai Chung, comes to look into his death. <laughs> and it's just like more of a straight up martial arts movie. So it does use a little bit of Bruce Lee footage, a little bit in that first half an hour. But then because Billy Lowe dies, it does not feel the need to do that for the rest of the movie. So for the next hour, you don't have to worry about that. And it's just a straightforward Kung Fu movie. And it's really fun. There is a, um, there, it is established that the, uh, one of the main villains has lions on his property and uh, real, you see real lions crawling all over this like safari vehicle that he and billy lowe are in and then later in the film there's this incredible scene where it, bobby lowe actually is the character's name bobby lowe uh-huh. is, is the brother <laughs> and he's being seduced by this naked white woman and she's about to poison him and a lion jumps through the window but it is very very clearly a dude dressed up in a lion suit and running around on all fours wow. and fighting bruce lee and it's amazing and then the movie ends in a literal underground lair where he finds this hidden um like elevator goes underground and it looks like something out of dr no it looks like something out of a james bond movie (laughs) and even when bobby lowe gets in fights down there all the henchmen are dressed in like shiny silver jumpsuits like from a james bond like james bond henchman it's amazing and the fight choreography is outstanding it's really silly and it's just 
a much better movie than, than their regular game of death. Wow. So I would recommend yeah. checking that out, which I guess brings me to our new feature. For viewing. Because Game of Death 2, I would say, is recommended viewing based on based on this movie. Just yeah. If you were disappointed by this one, hang check on. Check this other one out. <laughs> check out the check, sequel. Check the other Game of Death. Yeah, it's better. I'm based on your description. My recommended viewing is going to be Dragon Lives Again. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I you, stop drilling. You struck oil with me. Right. <laughs> that sounds so bonkers. I have to see that. Yes, I, I'm not going to argue uh, with that. I'm going to throw It Man in there. Recommended yeah. Man, yeah. like you have to yeah, watch it, all man. of them. Honestly, all, I haven't seen the fourth one, but the the first three are excellent. They're a little cheesy. Like they're a little. They they delve into the melodramatic a little more than i would like but donnie yen's a badass oh yeah and the fight like if, you, if are, you loved him in rogue one like hang on like the fight the fight <laughs> scenes movies really, are so awesome <laughs> really are outstanding and i would also have to say you know hopefully this is not your first bruce lee movie. i was <laughs> literally about to say like oh here's the other ones like the way of the dragon enter the yeah. dragon yeah i mean uh, hopefully Fist of Fury, uh... hopefully if you've watched game of death you've at least seen enter the dragon but if you haven't check out Enter the Dragon, but out of the other three that he made, I would highly, highly recommend, I mean, all of them, but especially Way of the Dragon, which is, is the one that he wrote and directed. That's the one that ends in the Roman Colosseum. It's set in Rome. He filmed on location at the Roman Colosseum and fights Chuck Norris in what is one of the best on-screen hand-to-hand combat fights that has ever existed. Nice. It's outstanding. And the whole movie's really good. Honestly, the whole movie is very, very good. But that finale with Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris doesn't show up until an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. He shows up. He's never mentioned in the movie. He shows up as like a henchman for the main bad guy, kicks some other dude's ass, and then is like the final boss in the main fight at the end because it's just him and and Bruce Lee. And they fight for 10 minutes. Like it is a long fight. And it is really, really good. I'm going to tell you though, Kim Taijong... I don't know where he, I don't know where his career is gone or, you know, but he's, he's legitimately good. And the Samo choreographed fights, if you get to Billy Joe goes to, uh, or low, is it Billy, Billy low, Billy, Billy low. Joe. Billy Joel. Billy Joe Armstrong. That's the, that's the movie I want to see. Billy Lowe Armstrong. It's uh, Billy Lowe Armstrong. If you get to where he goes to Macau, that's the part where it gets good. Like yeah. it, 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 it legitimately does get pretty good there. The fight scenes are legit. Samo is like choreographing those fight scenes. So like the fight between Samo and Bob Wall, and then later Kim Tai uh, Jong versus Bob Wall, like in the dressing room. Uh, and, and it's a complete callback to, I think, the way of the dragon, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he almost does the same charge up and then, like, kick into the locker. Um, yeah. Like, they're, they're, there's callbacks throughout. Um, those are those are good fight scenes. Like, they're legitimately yeah, good Yeah, there are scenes. good fight scenes in the movie. They're just, the story surrounding them is not. Yeah, it, it's before far. you get to the Bruce Lee thing, which, by the way, the Bruce Lee thing, I don't think I've ever seen two people fight with nunchucks that it legitimately worked i don't it's think so that good that's... dude it's uh <laughs> bruce lee with nunchucks blows my mind every and it was time because he, he does it watch it he does go. it in way like... of the dragon too uh but he's not fighting another guy but he is so fast with those nunchucks and i know how i mean not from experience but i know how hard those must be uh 
because I would immediately smack myself in the face and break my nose. Uh, <laughs> and he goes so fast with those things. And you get it a little bit in this one too, like where he like pops it in the face too. And he's like, how you like that? Like yeah. he's got like the, like, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. it's just, uh, it's fun. Like there's some, really there, fun. there's some legit good stuff. That's the thing. This movie's worth watching. If you're a fan of Bruce Lee, even out of curiosity, because like I said before, those last few minutes are worth the price of admission. But if you want to see the true representation, check out that Criterion Blu-ray, check out the Game of Death Redux, that 35-minute full edited sequence. It just absolutely incredible. Incredible nice. stuff. So Yeah, I just... Uh, what's, what's the name of the movie where it's the guy from Jungle Book playing him? That's a uh, dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Oh, that's dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Okay, I wanted oh, yeah. to I wanted to revisit that because I saw that years and years ago and loved it. But um... uh, hell yeah, I love it now. I've been talking about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Jason so. Lee is his name. And, oh, from uh, uh, from from uh, Mallrats. No, <laughs> not that Jason Lee. I think I think that's right. Hold on, I got to look this up real, real quick <laughs> because that's that's funny. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dragon the Bruce Lee story starring, let's see here, where's the IMDb? It, it stars, uh, yeah, Jason, Jason Scott Lee. Lee. Jason Scott yeah. Lee. And Lauren directed and co -written, Wait, directed and co written by Rob Cohen of Fast and Furious fame. Hey. Whoa, wait there a minute. <laughs> Based on the book by Robert Klaus. What? Oh man! So is, we don't have time the to any episode. That's we do not have time to go down this rabbit hole right now. We got to wrap this shit up. The director been talking for this two movie hours. wrote the book. This movie was based on. Oh my god! What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so let's wrap this up, friends. All right, all right. We'll so, talk about Dragon later. I guess we'll have to it now. Uh, but next, but next week we're moving on. Uh, we're moving on to, we mentioned the Shaw Brothers earlier in this episode as the studio that Bruce Lee turned down. But if you're talking about Kill Bill, you got to talk about the Shaw Brothers. So there were, there's a variety of Shaw Brothers movies that you could talk about for this series. None of them are specifically, like, none of them are really specifically referenced in Kill Bill, like, as like a single movie. Just the Shaw Brothers entire kind of, vibe they're in kind of their entire uh production uh is is referenced in i mean literally there's a shaw brothers logo at the beginning of kill bill so we decided to pick a shaw brothers movie that we thought was probably if you were going to start with any shaw brothers movie this is the one you start with probably their most famous from also from 1978 same year as game of death we're going to be talking about 36 chamber of shaolin if you've ever listened to wu-tang you know all about it so we're going to talk about that next week. It should be really fun. Then we'll have one more degree of Kill Bill before we get to the movie itself in a couple more weeks. So here's another one added tidbit of trivia. Uh, the guy who plays Stick, uh, which, by the way, is the name of the guy From who Daredevil. plays Daredevil. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Mel Novak, uh, he's still going strong at 80 yeah. years old, almost 80. Uh, next year, he'll be 80. Uh, he just like this year had a movie come out called Apex Predators. And uh, he, he, he was in, he was used by Robert Klaus, who wrote the book that Dragon the Bruce Lee story was based <laughs> off of um, and directed Game of Death. But uh, he was in Black Belt Jones, The Ultimate Warrior, Game of Death and Force 5. So he's, he's like a Hong Kong guy, like the, the Westerner that's in these Hong Kong movies. 
but he has a movie that came out this year called Apex Predators about a shark. Here's the premise. The bodies of beachgoers begin washing ashore during the grand opening of a new resort. The town mayor attempts to cover it up with dire I've seen results. this movie. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Mel Novak awful. is in this movie. And really guess what familiar. his character's name is? His name is in the Brody. movie. No, it's uh, Robert Klaus Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is so strange. It's so weird. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap this up, fellas. Uh, we have overstayed our welcome because there's just so much to talk about with this movie, but we hope everyone enjoyed this because this has been a really fun one to research and look into. Uh, do you guys want to let everyone know where you can be found on the internet? Todd, we'll start with you. All right. Rod, All right. Mr. Rod J. Davis. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rod yes. J. Davis. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know what? I'm going to send all of my social media. Uh, if you'd like to contact uh, Dr. Rod J. Davis, please head over to uh, uh, just go ahead and send it to at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all. On uh, all you've taken stuff. over his socials. Yeah. Yeah. In the will. I mean, go ahead dead, and send so. it to him. He was gifted it in the will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the COVID got him. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> Gary. I'm at this is Gary Horn on all of the things. I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock at Instagram, Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Find us at cinemashock.net where you can find all of our episodes, links to where you can subscribe. You can find links to our merch, buy our t-shirts and mugs and skateboards. If you want a cinema shock skateboard, buy a cinema shock skateboard. They exist. Uh, but until <laughs> next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys, my friend. Johnny has the keys. Oh, so you go to Bruce Lee. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Whoa!